feel the need, the need for need astute for s- film criticism. Uh, I don't know about this that. Is- I, th- I reckon it's it's going to be scattered nonsense with... Uh, I.e. Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen. Captain Falcon. Well, you can't be Captain Falcon because I was going to be Chris Captain Evans. Right. But I, the, I, the only I, way to resolve this is with a volleyball game. You're right. Or with a dogfight. It could be Chris Captain Australia. Chris Evans, Captain Australia. Be, it's Captain Australia. Yeah, okay. So this is Captain Falcon and Captain Australia on Film Fight Club. By coincidence, we are talking- both of our call signs are Captain. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we, we're going to be fighting this out like Tom Cruise fights in every single movie because we are talking Tom Cruise the one, the only, the enigma. It's weird for an actor so famous that he doesn't have much of a social media profile. He has he such is, a persona and he's so well known, but he's not, he has as, almost as, no media persona. There's be, there are a lot of jokes about has Tom Cruise ever watched a movie because someone noticed the trend last year that in interviews always without fail when he's asked what his favorite movies are or movies he's liked, he says, oh, so many, and then launches into some vague generic planned response about all these great films in reality tom cruise is apparently a massive cinephile who makes sure to watch at least one film every day but he just doesn't like to give anything of himself away in interviews but we'll get into all this and more later uh yeah, is not here with us if Verrat's not here with us, he is having a big week. He is uh, moving, congratulations, to his new place, but he'll be joining us next week when he is nice and settled to talk all things cinema. Yeah. Um, I have heard that about Tom Cruise. It helps when you don't sleep when, so you can have that many hours in the day. I don't right. think he slept since like 1985. <laughs> that ex- yeah, I, I think that's part of his secret to looking so young because when you sleep, that's when the time catches up with you. But the reason <laughs> we are speaking all things Tom Cruise is that Oh, a number of reasons. Khan was supposed to happen today. One of the premieres was supposed to be Maverick, the sequel, the long-awaited sequel. Not really long-awaited, but the long... I mean, long the long-rumored, now finally be- you know, becoming a thing right when nobody really wanted it. Um, and Tom's also been in the news recently. Because he is... My God, I, I love reporting this. This is so awesome. I can't even, can't even make this up. Tom Cruise is joining with NASA and the ISS. He is going to shoot a movie in space, being the first actor to do so of course tom cruise is doing this uh, we've seen oblivion but this is not, oblivion was nothing compared to this this is amazing yeah it makes sense for a guy who's made the latter part of his career about death defying real stunts in the age of cgi and how can you keep topping uh, what you've done previously keep doing things that have never been done before but yeah a big reason we're doing this is perhaps not here with us we all kind of wanted a break after doing these long expansive filmography retrospective episodes and we wanted to pick a nice chill subject where we've seen almost everything already yeah there's nothing more chill than tom cruise so as except on the couch on oprah perhaps a bit less than chill there (laughs) Took us three minutes to get to the Oprah Tom Cruise reference. South Park covered this exceptionally well as they covered Tom Cruise. Yeah. Their respect. Oh, Tom Cruise. But yes, Khan is another big addition to the Tom Cruise going to space. Khan was a big item in the news because it was supposed to happen today, but the festival have announced that they are going virtual to an extent. They're going to apparently be joining other festivals like Venice as a sidebar type event where you'll see elements of Khan at these other major forums. Yeah, it sounds like it's still kind of preliminary. Um, the bigger announcement was, you know, they realize now that they can't run the festival at all, but they insist on still having, to some extent, an official selection. Reading between the lines, it sounds like 
the official selection for this year's Cannes Festival that doesn't happen is just the films that have to have a release this year for some kind of um, financial incentive, like it's it's coded into the contract or something like that. And so they have to come to streaming or something like they must be out in 2020. And of those films that were going to Cannes, they thought they'd give them the boost of giving them the prestige of the, you know, the little Khan logo on the poster and like, hey, we would have selected this movie. So we know that one of those films is The Five Bloods from Spike Lee, um, which is a Netflix film coming in June. And speaking of matter of streaming online, the other big news just overnight, we were recording this on Wednesday morning, is that Hamilton, the musical, it was supposed to get a theatrical release in 2021. However, to the great joy of musical theatre fans, myself included, it's probably my favorite musical is coming to Disney plus on July 3rd run in time for July 4th Broadway will likely be closed so we can all enjoy one of the three rumored well-known oh, sorry, r- rumored performances of Hamilton that was recorded early back in the day with Lin-Manuel so something very much to look forward to for musical theater fans out there yeah um, this you'll, you'll be watching Hamilton much. this was going to be released in theaters it was announced a while back that Disney bought the theatrical rights to, to release the play of Hamilton, as opposed to the the film of Hamilton being screened in cinemas. But I think Disney now starving for content for Disney Plus, you know, right in the period where people start to have watched basically everything when it's a fresh new service and it's been out a few months and they suddenly can't release it, a bunch of the stuff that would have been on the table because of this whole COVID-19 delay to productions. So it makes sense to take something that's fresh and ready to go and this is blockbuster draw when it'll be hard to come up with anything else. I think they're not ready to put their big summer blockbusters, but something like Hamilton that's you know pre-recorded, it was basically just a license to print money. The cost of making that wouldn't be big, <laughs> you know, a recording of the yeah, theatrical performance. Yeah, I, I'd prefer the theatrical performance to any filmed version. I know, and I said this is a huge boon for Disney in that a lot of people who would never traditionally subscribe to Disney are going to say, either free trial, eight bucks. Yeah, I'm going to get that. And I'm going to watch Hamilton while I'm on lockdown. So, on the matter of COVID 19, we are still social distancing. Chris and I are recording this from our respective abodes. We appreciate everyone who's out there flattening the curve so we can get back to movies, maybe even come. Uh, to the lat- to just after mid this year well you know reports um, may be indicating yeah um that's something else that's been in movie news this week christopher nolan is still holding steady to the idea that tenet can be released around mid to late july the typical nolan weekend slot he apparently wants to keep that spot because nothing else is coming out and he wants to present the film as a gift of support to theaters I think the idea is that since nothing else is coming out, Tenet can show for ages. So it doesn't matter if people don't come out in in droves to see it opening weekend. And it just shows how much sway he has with Warner Brothers that they're even considering this when they've delayed all their other big movies. Apparently, they need to make a call about this. It was reported this week. So I guess maybe by the time you're hearing this, it'll have been delayed or maybe it really will be coming out in July. Well, we hope we can see it very soon. It's certainly a major project. Everyone, everyone's going to turn up for a Nolan film. On matter of Australia, certainly the speculation that cinemas could reopen come July with strict distancing measures and with strict capacity limitations. But we are speculating um, based on the available uh, announcements. We'll wait and see, and certainly we're reporting that in the coming weeks. In the meantime, things you can catch online. The Sydney Film Festival, in addition to being part of the We Are One Festival from May 29th and doing a virtual festival from the second week of June, are having a Q&A with Hugo Weaving, which is available for free on Friday night. Static Vision, the film collective, 
are running a live stream event with Trash Night and comedian Alexei Teliopoulos on Friday night as well. Tilda, Tilda Melbourne, Melbourne's Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival are running a pyjama film party also on Friday night. A lot happening on Friday. The Tasmanian Breath of Fresh Air Film Festival, BOFA, are having their last of three weekends of streaming of films, of festival conversations. It's always free. You just have to sign up to their newsletter and you can access all the films. I've caught them both weekends past. It's been a fun time. The Sydney South African Film Festival is going virtual for the first time from May 16th and having an 11-day run screening. It's the second festival and the first time it's gone virtual where they'll be screening a number of South African features, documentaries, shorts, and narrative features. And the Smartphone Film Festival SF3, whose entries are open now, are having a smartphone filmmaking masterclass on May 18. That's also virtual. It's all things you can check out in the coming week. But for now, other things you can check out. We caught all these films on Stan, Amazon Prime. If you're on Netflix, I know this is a double up on Mission Impossible among a few of the streaming services, but Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has a special place in my life because Mission Impossible was the first big Hollywood action film I ever saw. So it's had a lasting impact. It's had an enduring impact for me. And Tom Cruise has had an enduring impact on Hollywood. He, he along with, by my reckoning, Brad Pitt, um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Scarlett Johansson are the last really big modern movie stars who don't do television, who are just pure big you lights. Know, I wouldn't place, maybe it's just because of the sheen that being a huge star in the nineties had, um, but I wouldn't place Scarlett Johansson on that level. I don't think she's as much of a draw as those actors are um, for general audiences. I think she's brilliant. Uh, I'm, this is not a slide on Scarlett Johansson at all. Um, I think she's finally getting her due for a long time. People were falsely saying she wasn't a good actress, I think. But yeah, Tom Cruise was huge, you know, in the 90s. He and Brad Pitt, man. But I, but Tom Cruise even more so, just growing up. Well, he's remember, the biggest of that group, I'd say. He's, yeah. He's the, lot, he's the biggest movie star. For sure. Um, and just the world. As, as a kid, I just remember... The, the, how larger than life he seemed and the, the media attention around him. It really shows how little people care about movie stars now compared to back then, you know, but yeah, Tom Cruise, man. It's, it's funny. I've never really thought of him as a great actor, even though he's given some great performances, but I think he's a great movie star. He has this really unique charisma. He like, he has this intensity where he can be vicious, which we rarely get to see that side of him in casting, but he, he can easily turn it that way, or he can be really cool and charming. But the charm comes so easy, and he has such a unique look. It's it's boyish, but handsome. Like, he's so everyman. He can so easily get slot into any kind of performance, provided that the character is confident. I think... Tom Cruise would really struggle to play a not a character that struggles completely with confidence. I think it's, I agree with everything you said. I think the, the addition to the charisma intensity, he just has so much cachet because, and it is more related to his career. He's just willing to go an extra mile and do things no one else. And certainly people of his era and age moreover are willing to do. But I think with Cruise, he even in the early days, you look at even even you saw hints of it in risky business. Certainly, Top Gun, which we're going to talk about in a minute, was the first great inkling of this. But he has more of a movie star presence than near any other 
modern performer. It's like on the level of James Cagney mm. um, and a few of the early, very, very greats. And it's to the extent that when he's in a movie, he's not just, le- he's not just front and center. He's, he's not just the lead, that he does not befit a role where he is not the center of attention. He does not befit a role where it isn't to some extent larger than life. There are exceptions like The Firm, which I really like. But the 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 faults in his career is when he's gone to something extremely low key, and he's he's better, and he's I agree more than unlike most actors. Just when he conversely does the it up. the way he looks and the way he presents, I think means that we just don't buy it if he plays things too small. But I think we'll get to this when we discuss his later career choices. I feel like this tendency to always be the center of attention has turned into this massive ego eruption. Um, If you look at his latter films, it's always about doing these incredible stunts as he gets older and his character is always like perfect shining beacon. There's some exceptions. Mission Impossible has become like the, everyone talks about how amazing Ethan is all the time kind of saga. And it's like, I wish you would do Collateral or Magnolia again. Just show us some of those other sides. Yeah. And on the 4th of July, some of his better performances. I think on that, on Mission Impossible, we have talked about Mission Impossible in some detail in the past. We'll only be touching on it here in addition to Eyes Wide Shut and American Made, which we've also covered. To be honest, but I feel Mission like we're, we're just going to touch on a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to be, yeah, we're going to be covering some in some detail, some in a little bit more detail. On the matter of Mission Impossible, it's fascinating to me that it is the coda for Cruz throughout his career. He did Mission Impossible when he was the young, plucky upstart. Mission Impossible 2 came along when he's making films where he is the largest he's ever been. He's invincible. He's magnificent. In Mission Impossible 3, but, suddenly, in his life persona, he's a family man. He's settling down a little, but he's still doing what he does. And come Mission Impossible 4 and onwards, well, he becomes, he's still doing it. He's showing that he can still be up there and at it. And he's showing that he can do the stuff that no one else in his generation is willing to do. It's a, if, you want a, if you want one series and one role which can characterize Tom Cruise, it is Ethan Hunt. More of a good only one aside from Jack Reacher, he's returned to over the years. Now, look, he, it only seems like he was a plucky upstart when he made Mission Impossible because his career has been so long. You know, that was 10 years after Top Gun. It was the same year as Jerry Maguire. He was already a huge movie star. You know, but in retrospect, it's like, yeah. oh, he's so young and fresh faced. It's it's before the craziness of like the eyes wide shut Mission Impossible two years in terms of media hype around him, <coughs> Vanilla Sky. But yeah, risky business, man. It's funny he that that role is perfect for him because he has twenty. Yeah, just believe he, it or not, he he looks young, but that role has the kind of like smug edginess to it, and. That's why, for me, I struggle with Tom Cruise playing characters that are too nice in some of his latter films because I think he does have that like kind of nasty edge in some of his performances. I mean, this is a good thing, you know, like he has that like you've sensed that he has a dark side that he's concealing, um, and it's, it's... For, for whatever reason, he started playing away from that. I like I you know I referred to earlier. I feel like there's just a desire to be liked. But yeah, in risky think, business, it's it, it, you know you get to see the nice guy and and also the the hidden sides. A matter of Tom Cruise being 
nice guys. I think he got the balance wrong in probably my least favorite Tom Cruise film, War of the Worlds, where, yes, it's a large-in-life scenario, but he's playing such an everyman who's so unaccustomed to what he's dealing with. That any number of other actors could, could have filled this role better. Um, one of the roles where he does play a nice guy is, again, one of my very favorite Tom Cruise films, The Firm, and probably the best Grisham adaptation. But then the hard-edged element to his character comes in his role as a very competent legal advocate. So there's the right balance there. Risky Business, I liked it. I actually liked it more than Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which came a few years later, which it was emulating. But Tom Cruise, man, like the guy at 20 cannot, even at 20, he cannot pull for a teenager. He, yes, he was young, and he looks young by how he looks now, but he just seems so much more so beyond his ears. and intense. I was going to say in some ways that that's appropriate to the film, but no, he, he's also meant to be the innocent in that, in that film very much in some ways. Um, but you know, co- what was after the risky business cocktail? Have you, you've seen that? I haven't uh, the seen cocktail that. Cocktail was 1989. Top Gun. It was legend came about that. Oh, time. legend. Right. And yeah. Risky business, losing Top Gun. legend. And then Top Gun. Let's talk, let's talk I, about Top Gun. How can we not talk about Top Gun if we're talking about Tom Cruise? How, how can we not? Me and Glenn both yeah, watched so, this for the first time in ages yesterday. God damn. I hadn't seen it in 15 years. I remember I didn't like it very much on first watch. And it's been, so, but it, it's, it, it has such cultural saturation. It's been so endlessly parodied through Archer and Team America and everything. It's so self It's ingrained in pop culture. It was such a huge hit at the time. The soundtrack propelled it. I think it's one of the early movies that people link to the idea of MTV aesthetics creeping into cinema. Um, it's very, very tame by the standards of what that would become, but if you look at Michael Bay and the, you know, the, you can see the seeds of his style in um, some of the Tony Scott's early work. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think Bay kept on ripping Tony Scott forever. You know, he's when Tony Scott went to the um, grainy switching film stocks, zoom, you know, wide all over the place style. Michael Bay went to that. But yeah, it, the the shots of the planes coming in at sunrise and you know sunset and this the helicopters it's it's just like okay I get where Bay got his ideas. It's yeah, the the action sequences are very well shot to Scott's credit. They I are think they are with great. This movie, it's it has the most of it has the standard dumb eighties plot. You meet a guy who's gonna have a family, you know what's gonna happen to him. There's a bunch of action, machismo, um, a lot of charisma flying around, but it's elevated by a few things. The soundtrack, Kenny Loggins, Otis Redding, the Doobie Brothers, um Take My Breath Away, great song. Obviously Cruz and Kilmer at a very early point in their careers. It's a great role but- for Cruz because he's an arrogant jerk, but he's also honorable. You know, it's like that 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 those edges to Tom Cruise I was talking about, which is the place where he excels. Yeah. Um, on, just, on the matter of another character, so we never, we never spoke about Val Kilmer on the show. On rewatch, I never realized this the first time. Iceman's the good guy. Like, he plays it by the book. He's being responsible. He's being prudent. And he comes yeah. in and says, I have a problem with the way this guy is acting. And exactly. he's not framed that way because it's an 80s action film. But Iceman, I've got your back, guy, dude. He's, yeah. he, he knew what was on. Yeah, I, I agree. Iceman was right. And, and Iceman was proven to be valid with some of the thing in his complaints with some of the things that happened um, over the course of the story. And Iceman is a guy with integrity. If Tom Cruise does the right thing, he's not just going to be going to say, you know, well, that was just a fluke or whatever. He gives props, <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with Iceman. But you know what? Nah, re- good guy. 
Yeah, but you know what really stood out to me watching uh, the, watching this movie now? Meg Ryan. You can just see the star she's about to become. She has such a small role, but she absolutely stealed, stole every scene she's in. And today she had the best performance in this movie. Yeah. I really liked her. I liked her a lot. I mean, I think Val Kilmer was great. Uh, Tom Cruise, again, he was relying more on charisma here than um, he's, we would soon see his very strong acting ability. Uh, the other performers, Michael Ironside, Tom Skerritt, are perfectly serviceable. Um, it's just such I, a stupid movie. I, <laughs> it's it's not a great movie. It's, I think it's just like the iconography of cool young guys flying around planes, uh, you know, like at sunset and like competing with each other and like, and he, and he rides a motorcycle. It's just like kind of like a wish fulfillment fantasy. Like I wish I was that cool. It set the tone so much yeah, for people, any number of other films, but it's endured, I think, because and among so many 80s action films, it took itself seriously enough and didn't want to be locky. It's not really an 80s action movie. Like, it is an action movie, sort of, but it's more of, like, an 80s... I, it's almost like a teen movie, except with young adults. You know, like, it's a melodrama. It mixes a lot of elements, which I guess is why people like it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> a, a, a big issue with this movie is that there's no real character because nothing that happens has consequences. Really. We see him do something stupid in the opening scenes, but no, you're still going to be top gun. We see a terrible thing happen, which granted wasn't his fault, but we don't see him actually learn. Uh, I disagree. He does. Um, he, he doesn't, he learns not to give up from that, but along the way he learns uh, maybe if, you know, like some spoilers here, um, you know, like he's told, you know, you never abandon your wingman. And then even he, at the end, when he's being asked to do something else, he's like, no, I'm sticking with my wingman. So he does learn, you know, like to some, be a, a little bit more by the book. It's a very quick turnaround, uh, Captain Australia. <laughs> I, I think, I think he, does, he does become a little bit more by the book. But, you know, we can't discuss Top Gun in 2020 without talking about the gay subtext people have seen in it. What do you think? It's more than a subtext on rewatch. I totally so agree. Obvious. I 100% agree. Oh, I was God. hoping you would say that. <laughs> but, one of the, so, so we played Cons Against Humanity this weekend. And one of the cards that's been in the original deck and always comes up is a homoerotic volleyball montage, which obviously harks back to Top Gun. It's, it's so, not just this, the imagery. It's not just all the scenes in the locker room where there's just all these gorgeous men and towels hanging around. It's the line readings and so many references which are very, very blatant. People make jokes about it, but no, it's very, very clearly there. There's so many goddamn um, uses of I'm going to put my butt on the line. And like, they, they keep talking about butts and it just it, <laughs> I want more butts. It culminated, yes. Butts. It culminates in I want some butts! And it's like so some butts yeah just oh man in the context of this film and everything else that's going on and some of the ways that Iceman and <laughs> Maverick stare at each other the volleyball scene is so so strange to me because it's like how did people not look at this and think it was the gayest thing ever it's so much like com like standard commercial gay imagery you know like it's like it's like softcore photo shoot quality in the way it, it's filmed the shot of Rick Vosovich, the guy who was in Roxanne and Terminator, just, I think. That's yeah, that's like the one. Thing it's as he shoots the volleyball and just everything just slightly, slightly slowed down. Yeah. It's, it's great, but I, 
It's very clear. Please, let's not kid ourselves. It's not subtext, I agree. Top Gun is gay. And the thing Um, is, you don't buy his relationship with the astrophysicist or whatever. Kelly McGillis. No. She's, it really annoys me. Kelly McGillis is in one of my all-time favorite films when we spoke about it a few weeks ago, Witness. She's so excellent in this. She doesn't get a lot to do here, even though she's the female lead, which is a major detraction for the movie. And you don't buy the relationship. Not he's at a, all. He's also, also the stuff Tom Cruise's character does, not cool. Not cool by any stretch. With regard to? Uh, the manner in which he pursues her early on. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. It, the, 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 this story would not fly today. You couldn't play it this way. No. But yeah, just going back to Meg Ryan briefly, wasn't she so much more charismatic than Kelly McGillis? Kelly McGillis? She probably should have been in the lead. Yeah. Yeah. She seemed like yeah, she actually... I could have seen it. She, but she actually seemed like she believed in her role and was investing heart and emotion into it. I and and this was what where people first really noticed her. I think so. I've always liked Meg Ryan. Me too. She, yeah, for, for all of like six minutes in the film and in every scene, being opposite Tom Cruise or Goose, um, she has and and you needed her role to work in order to ground the emotional intensity of, um, the most tragic elements of the film. Yeah, and she she nailed it. Yeah, yeah. She was destined for great things, clearly. Lastly, about this film, I just want to note that in the opening text crawl, there's a spelling mistake. It says insure instead of ensure. And yes, Top Gun, spelling, and the era before, signs. The era before uh, easy typo checks. Well, well, yeah. well that is Top Gun. Um, yeah, in case you're wondering what the scenes are like behind, uh, what's behind, like behind the scenes at Film Fight Club, uh, whatever Chris and I disagree, it always comes into an Iceman Maverick style intense show off. But um, <laughs> then we play volleyball and sweat it all out. We have not recently because of social distancing, which has been very frustrating for us. I know, yeah. Just need to. Yeah, but uh, you can be my wingman anytime, Captain Australia. Bullshit, Captain Falcon. You can be mine. Ah. Uh. Uh, we'll find <laughs> later on the volleyball court, Chris. And next up, we're talking. Um, we're going to be talking much more of the podcast. We've got a few minutes left, but we want to touch on Tom Cruise's first great recognized dramatic performance, and that is the Best Picture winner from that from 1988, Rain Man, a film that was on Friday nights on Channel Ten every few yeah, weeks. all the time, which is how I saw it. And you know, I haven't really seen it since. And given how much no, my taste has shifted, I'm not sure I feel really qualified to talk much about this film. I, yeah, I haven't seen it. Granted, I haven't seen it in about 15 years, but I've watched it maybe seven or eight times. I liked it. It was my introduction to Dustin Hoffman. I'm it was certainly... mine too. And it was also my introduction to the idea that Qantas, Qantas planes don't fail. Yes. This film was played on, is still played on Qantas because of that line. Which right. is Qantas planes crash. <laughs> really? That's great. Just reassure you Um, on your trip. (laughs) Any film today which deals with the matter of autism in some way references or is in some way builds the template of Rain Man. Um, There's a great film that came out last year, The Drummer and the Keeper, an Irish film, which had a similar issue of a young, plucky, good-looking guy in relationship with an autistic young man, and there's huge shades of Rain Man in it. Um, it's had also a huge impact on cultural zeitgeist when talking about um, about this issue and on films which have sought to deal with it going forward. So I don't think we can underestimate how influential it has been. Um, I liked it. It showed what Tom Cruise can do. We're having an intense role, but subverting it to more dramatic ends rather than showmanship. 
Born on the 4th of July, man. We're going to have to talk about that more on the podcast. It was big for Tom Cruise. It got him nominated. I think, I'm just double checking that. I think it was his first. It was his first Oscar nomination. The first of two, I think. Oh, and just before we get into Born on the 4th of July, I just want to note Cocktail. It's not that great. Um, Tom Cruise should not have played second fiddle to Brian Brown. And it's a film that has not aged well. I would say it's, it's very much, unlike Top Gun, it hasn't. It, I don't think it's very much accessible and enjoyable beyond its 80s context. That's Cocktail, born on the 4th of July. I first saw this years ago. It's I, my favorite Tom Cruise performance is Magnolia, but my favorite turn from him is this film because he, he was front and center. He was there throughout the whole time. He's excellent. We'll be talking much more about Tom Cruise going on into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes and on Spotify. And like us on social media. media. And where can you find us on social media? You can find us at twitter.com slash filmfightclubau or at facebook.com slash filmfightclub. Please pick a fight with us anytime. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Send us a suggestion, please, about a subject you'd like us to talk about. We're all ears at this point. We're all ears, yep. Um, and we'll even talk uh, let about us talk about events going on around town, too. Please. And we'll be back next week with Farat Nehru. And stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin on 2FCR. This has been Gl- Captain Australia. Captain Australia. Evans. Captain Falcon. Captain Falcon. There's two captains, man. No one that this ship has such difficulty landing. Have a good night, guys. <laughs> good night. <laughs> Watch it in slow motion as you turn around say, Welcome back to Film Fight Club, born on the 4th of July. This tells the true story of a Vietnam War veteran and his experience um, during the war. And I, this is, I, I guess this constitutes a minor spoiler, but we can't talk about the film without discussing this. Um, he is paralyzed in the, 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 Tom Cruise plays, is paralyzed in the course of his service in the Vietnam War. He comes back to America and a lot of the film is about his experience climatizing back to a life in mm. America, now a paraplegic, and, and, and it's being emblematic of how Viet, many Vietnam War veterans were treated yeah. and ill-treated in I, the years during and following the war. It's not the first film to deal with the post-war experience for Vietnam veterans. Obviously, the major example a lot of people would think of is The Deer Hunter. But I think this and film... Home. And Coming Home, yeah. But I think this film gave a really important perspective you know, in showing the severity of some of the trauma and um, a really grounded view of what, a, you know, what a soldier goes through physically and psychologically. Um, I, I like the film. Like, I, I don't love it. It has the same to me kind of like overblown preachy quality to it that a lot of Oliver Stone's films do, I think. Um, I, I, it's not as pronounced as it is in this stuff by him that annoys me the most, but I think it's a little too straightforward and prescriptive, but it is moving at the best moments in the narrative. It's based on the memoir of Ron Kovic, real life guy who went through this experience. um, I can totally understand why Oliver Stone was drawn to making this film about him and with him because they collaborated on the screenplay together. Kovic is a guy who went from being 
you know, super pro-war to coming out, um, being changed by his experience and becoming a peace advocate. Oliver Stone is a guy who went through Vietnam and came out as a guy who makes anti-war films. There's a synergy there. I actually prefer this in many respects to Platoon, a film which I don't mind the ac- films that, yes, they're, they're dramatic recreations of war, but they play out as action scenes. This has less emphasis on the action, more emphasis on the psychological impact. I like yeah. that more. In regards to Tom Cruise, this was pretty much ideal casting for him because we see the opening sequences where he's getting recruited and it's very strong shades of his of Maverick and he brings that intensity of yeah. I'm gonna go I'm Tom Cruise I can go out and save the world and then when he finds out that's not possible we see him turn to the more dramatic scales of what he can do as an actor and there's great sequences he shares with Defoe um, including one later in the film in the desert where there's a confrontation between two main characters there's a great one where he a confrontation with his mother and his family in the house oh yeah it's a great scene the final sequence in the film is superb I think um, that's one of my favorite of my favorite Cruise performances yeah, Cruz's intensity really works here for the moments when he flies off the handle or just expressing his anguish. You believe it. Cruz can sell you on that intensity of emotion. And he, he also has that kind of innocence in his, in his look and, um, you know, simple kind of played straight emotional intensity early on to contrast so that, you know, when you, when you give him a beard and shaggy hair, uh, it has a big visual impact. See also The Last Samurai. Yes, uh, don't see The Last Samurai. But <laughs> well, yeah. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. I had the unusual experience of going to this film not knowing anything about it so or about the, the author. So when the major event happened at the end of the first act... You were genuinely was, surprised, right? I was surprised. I was shocked. It was a major about turn, as was seeing Tom Cruise transform into this shaggy, more seriously focused figure um it's it's a great subversion of the more hype masculine elements which tom cruise would still continue to repel in the, in the later stages of his career i'd recommend it it's a film that has gone at least outside of the states a bit outside of the cultural zeitgeist people don't talk about this when they talk about tom cruise um mm. chris your reference earlier to how he's never considered a great actor. he is a great actor well you know people talk about mission impossible which he's good in but not nearly on the level of yeah he's great well it's funny you say that because um i I was talking to my mom and she said you know she asked what we were doing on the show this week and i said tom cruise and she mentioned born on the fourth of july and i said i hadn't seen it and she said what you know how can you cover this if if you haven't seen born on the fourth of july he's so good in it so i i then had to go and watch it for this episode but yeah, it shows that at least for some, it left a big impression and they talk about it when they think of Tom Cruise. It's a film that I know my dad, but that doesn't watch a lot of movies, but I know it's a film he was very fond of. Vietnam does have a particular place. The Vietnam conflict does have a particular place in my family. Um, I was talking to my roommate about Tom Cruise and I asked her just casually, hey, what do you think of Tom Cruise? And she said, she paused for a second and said, my mom likes Tom Cruise. And <laughs> I know that he does intergenerationally he is seen very differently. I, I don't. I think you're right. We don't see him as at least Andre doesn't see him as the major movie star, at least in the level he is. It's partly. partly I mean, nineties. It's all par- Top Gun contemporaneously. It's partly his own fault. He needs to stop doing exclusively action films. He, he hasn't done a dramatic film. Collateral was his last real. Probably. Dramatic film. Collateral is an action film, but it's a dramatic role. But since then, he's been just action hero roles. And I would, and Lions for Lambs was not good. 
So we, right. we can't really but put it in top. Lions top. Lambs was what, 2006? So almost like 2007. 2007. Okay. That's a fair while ago. Valkyrie yeah. was the same year, right? Valkyrie was 09. I'm just bringing it up now. Uh, Valkyrie was 08. Yeah, that's a while. Also an action film with dramatic, with overriding dramatic elements, but also a bad movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, over a decade of entirely hero roles, it's, it's not good for his public reputation. I think he can do better. I understand wanting to be at the full. a real low point in that regard. Yeah. Um, I understand The Mummy. Yeah. Um, we'll get to talk about that later. Yeah. I understand the desire to be front and center in an era when dramatic films aren't holding the place in multiplexes that they used to have. Um, but, you know, we'll get to that. It's, but still, it's, it's like, it's such wasted potential. You know, this is an Academy Award nominated actor who's given several brilliant performances. And now it's all about like the I do my own stunts thing. I'm impressed that he does, but you know, more yeah, I don't want to take possible. away from that. What, what I'd like to see him do is return to fantasy. I really like interview with the vampire. I haven't seen legend. I understand it's good. Why doesn't he try stuff? And I'm not talking science fiction. He's good at science fiction. Mm. But he does a very action oriented science fiction edge tomorrow oblivion, which in fairness, both very, very good films. Do some fantasy. Edge of tomorrow more so I think, but oblivion is cool from a visual perspective, especially. Um, well, as terms of his next films, uh, to my discredit, I have not seen the two early Nicole Kidman co-starring. Far and away. Far and oh away. man, Days of Thunder was on TV the other day. I missed a small chunk of it because I had to take a phone call. Uh, but man, Days of Thunder. It's, it's another Bruckheimer Simpson production directed by Tony Scott. Um, For anyone who's seen Talladega Nights, this is the film they were taking the piss out of. Right. Um, yeah, I see that. It's basically, you know, reuniting that Top Gun team. It's basically Top Gun, except with cars. <laughs> um, it's, it's the same kind of dumb, predictable story, you know, where like there's an accident and you've got to recover from that. You've got to find your feet again and the confidence to get back in that car and win. You know, it's the same story. But um, it's so stupid. The, the aesthetic that um, music video... TV commercial, glossy, Jerry Bruckheimer, Tony Scott aesthetic has really evolved since Top Gun. Watching this, um, there's just such style in a lot of the shots. Um, it's worth watching in that regard. Um, and to see uh, young Nicole Kidman, sure, but also mind-blowing is the bit part from a really young John C. Riley. Right. Yeah, as, as a, wow. one of the guys in the pit crew. But um, the pit crew of Tom Cruise's character, who I have to name because there's no way we can not discuss this name if we're talking about Days of Thunder. Cole, Cole Trickle. Cole friggin' Trickle, man. Doesn't it just send a cold trickle down your spine? Oh, God. Um, In terms of bad movie names, it's, it's, it's down there. Uh, Days of Thunder, I was actually more entertained uh, and got more of a reaction out of reading the description um, of the production debacle on Wikipedia than I did out of watching the movie. It's basically describing a whole lot of dueling egos in the production, mostly from the producers, but also from Robert Town, who wrote the script, um, resulting in this calamitous mess of a production. So much so that, spoilers, he does cross the finish line of the final race. They forgot to get the big shot where he crosses the finish line during the production. So in the actual film, they have to use an editing trick of just another 
shot of cars driving and put the voiceover saying it's the end, it's the end of the race. It reminds they me forgot, of the Silver Line. They forgot to film the car crossing the finish line at the end of the big race. Like that level of chaos on set. Oh my God. Anyway. It reminds me of at the end of Silver Linings playbook when there's that huge dramatic moment when this competition, everyone holds up the numbers and it's the big crux of the film, except one person on set, Jackie Weaver, pointed out the numbers didn't add up, so they couldn't actually show the shot on the film. And in the otherwise well-directed <laughs> flick, it's really, really awkward and it's Damn. very noticeable. David Russ, what were you doing? But Days of Thunder, is it, I mean, should I, should I see it? Look, to give you an idea about how dumb it is, um, early on to Robert Duvall, his, you know, the mentor, manager guy, um, Bob DeVal's in this guard. Yeah, I know, right? So much money and, and talent on just junk. To give you an, a sense of how junky, um, he admit, admits to Robert DeVal that, oh, I actually don't know anything about cars. He's this amazing racer. And so in order to become better, he needs to be taught about cars. But it's so transparently, uh, um, how can we work out a way to explain all this car terminology to the audience? Like you expect me to believe that a person gets to that position without just getting interested enough in cars because he drives them for a living, um, that he cares about the performance aspects of his job and his craft. Uh, uh, like you, you're just not supposed to think about anything. The romance is dumb. You know, Nicole Kidman plays the like a hotshot doctor who he falls for. I, I don't know. Should you so watch it? Batman like forever. Yeah. Look, should you watch it? I mean. If, sounds like no. If if the above, like it's not terrible. If you if it's like on in the background eating cheezos. <laughs> I, I mean cheezos, Chris. Well, no, sorry, I'm from Australia. <laughs> All right, I give let's it a, move give on. It a break. <laughs> um, what does strike me about this era of his career is that this is when he and Nicole Kidman remember they were married. It was a long time ago were the king queen of was seen as king queen of hollywood well, this is the first film they did together apparently um yeah. tom cruise saw nicole kidman in dead calm and asked for her to be great movie. days of thunder yeah, that's how it all back. started yeah um I, we didn't see far and away cruise, which is one of those far away. The, those next films on they the, did together on the matter of tom cruise's persona there was a time in the 90s in Australia where people loved Tom Cruise because he was married to Al Nicole when she was the biggest movie star we had at the time and possibly still. She's fantastic. And then I remember when they divorced, there was this whole period of, we hate Tom Cruise. So his cultural cachet in Australia shifted very dramatically and very quickly for quite some time. Everyone's beyond, well beyond that now, but you couldn't talk about Tom Cruise in the 90s in Australia without talking about him What he Nicole. did to Al Nicole. Al Nicole. Al Nick. Yeah, still on it. We love her. Um, a few good men. Actually, what's next? Uh, yeah, a few good men is next. A few good men. Uh, and uh, based on the Aaron Sorkin play. Yes, and um, first and, big breakout hit his career. And uh, I, I believe it. It's yeah, it's his first screenplay. And you know, it's the first Aaron Sorkin screenplay. It's based on his play, which has now been revived on Broadway, uh, very popular, very fam- very popularly. It's a very well-received production, the latest one. I actually prefer the play. It's better in confined settings. It's a better drama when it's more easy and more seamless to cycle between all the characters. Here, there's all these travel sequences which don't serve much function. Except maybe for expanding it and removing that feeling that, oh, this is just a play, right? 
I don't mind it being just, I think it works in the context of, uh, of a relatively insular drama. Right. It's a courtroom um, drama. I was going to say that for a first time screenwriter, um, whether this is because of Rob Reiner, the director's input, or just that Aaron Sorkin just had the knack, um, it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm just watching a play that's been filmed. Like a lot of scripts by um, playwrights adapting their films, or a lot of adaptations of plays end up feeling. It doesn't feel it at all. You'd also see my all-time favorite television show is The West Wing, and you'll see a lot of early hints as to what The West Wing would become in terms of the fast-talking dialogue, uh, relationships in the so characters, sharp, man. a character called Danny. The dialogue is really so good. strong, fast-paced, really, really clear character arcs and and moments of transformation and stuff. Like it, like as far as classical script writing goes, is perfect. But, and a good approach to exposition and layering it within the script and yeah. what else is going on. It works in the context of a procedural courtroom drama. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, I, I like this movie, but I don't have much passion for it. It's a pretty standard um, courtroom drama that I think is elevated by the military aspect. Yeah, I've, I've seen this maybe, again, this was another one like Rain Man and Jerry Maguire, which we'll talk about in a minute, that was on TV every few Friday nights in Channel 10. I've seen it maybe a dozen times. I really yeah, it was on like all the time. Um, it also brought Guantanamo Bay into the zeitgeist long before the controversies more publicly ensued surrounding it. It is partly set there. Yeah. So the beginning of the film is set there. I like Jack Nicholson in this. I like Demi Moore in this a lot. I rewatched March and Call, which I really like. She's really underrated as a dramatic She performer. is, for sure. And however, we're talking about Tom Cruise. We have to talk about Tom Cruise. He's the weakest in this of all the other actors. You think all so? All the others have more interesting characters and more stuff to do. Daniel Caffey, the crew's character, is pretty much a mouthpiece for Sorkin and his earnestness. Again, when you have to emphasize earnestness over intensity, Tom Cruise doesn't fare well. But he gets to have very much of the character is here. Early on, he gets to play a smug jerk, and um, it's it's only over the course of it the, the film that the earnestness wins out, but he still gets to have a great rant moment along the way when he does his, your stupid rant to Demi Moore. And he gets yeah. to do his um, charming Tom Cruise stick too. What is it? I've been asked some of dates before and this is what it sounds like. And it, just right. comes, yeah. it could come across as arrogant because Tom Cruise comes across but, as so natural and it works in, his, in the scene. His character is arrogant though. You know, his character is an arrogant guy who sort of, it's, a, it's, like, it's almost like Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of. Oh yeah, um, I don't like boats. Um, I don't. This is what a courtroom looks like. Yeah. Um, we see with the baseball where he's in the pit and just swinging and just trying to get a deal. But yeah, it's totally the story of like the the, the jerk who learns learns about honor and integrity and becomes a nice guy. The way that it ends, by the way, with a big classical the end sign, like this is a '40s film. I think is a is a great touch. It's like they they knew that they were ending on a Frank Capra type note, so it's like, here it is. Um. I, I, I like, I just hadn't actually occurred to me, but yeah, it's a really similar, I do like the classicism of this. It's a really similar arc to Maverick, but it's better handled here because the interactions with Dawson and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of the other um, person who was charged with the murder. Good memory and, to remember Dawson. Dawson's the one who oh, speaks I, anyway. <laughs> it's a, yeah, he's the one who, yeah, again, uh, and Actually, this, this this film has changed. Uh, I watched it after becoming a solicitor once, and I remember watching scenes of it being frustrated with how 
two, those two, the two accused would interact with him. But in the context of having in, uh, interacted more and more with um, clients, I can see, yeah, this is actually a, in many oh, respects, yeah. depending on the person you deal, you're engaging with, relatively faithful as to how um, counseling, legal counsel can engage with Interesting. Um, persons they're because, uh, forced to advocate so, for. So can someone who always likes to do his research. Yes, and he went on for this to the American President, a film I don't like as much, but he no. could have made the West Wing without it, so I'm I'm all for it. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's I think it's good. I think it holds up too, and it's not just the I want the truth scene, which everyone talks about. And all his quotes. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to quote in this movie, but it really it um, just shows that that Jack Nicholson is the star attraction of this one, right? You know, people just love the delivery from Nicholson. Oh, Nicholson, um, how is your father, Danny? He died seven years ago. Well, yeah. don't I feel like an asshole? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He's bloody good. Um, if you can, man, the next film, another legal thriller is The Firm. This, I haven't seen this one in a long time. Again, Friday nights. It was on often, yeah. Yeah. Um, much, I, this, much nicer lawyer than in A Few Good Men, I would say, overall. Like, not by the end of A Few Good Men, but like less kind of like this guy's a dick <laughs> vibes going on. Oh yeah, we like him. I mean, he's a bit of a Mitch McDee. He's a bit of a bland do-gooder, but more than a few good men and more than most legal thrillers, that's actually how the law operates. It's relatively faithful, but Grisham, like Sorkin, did his research. So mm. it pans out. Um, I actually like this a lot. The Pelican Brief is my favorite Grisham adaptation. A time the client would be next, the time to kill, but the firm is a close second to um, the Pelican Brief. And I, I know I like more it. than Cruz... Again, there's just the cast that are working wonders around him. Ed Harris, David Strathen, Gary Busey, Gene Hackman. There's a really strong supporting element to this. Mm. All working pretty much top of the game. I liked it. I don't have too much to say about it. I think it's a competent thriller where we could see Cruz doing dramatic work, but the intense comes through in the sequences where he has to do legal work or where otherwise he is confronted with the extreme circumstances. So a great balance for showing the scale of what he is capable. Yep. And then interview with the vampire. Again, I prefer the book. Based yeah. on the Anne Very controversial casting where he was Lestat. Yeah. Um, People are happy about this, but it panned out. It's not faithful to the book, but uh, yeah, I, as I understand it, but um, I've got it behind me on my bookshelf actually. Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I dug his, um, I dug his intensity. It's one of those things where he has the the charisma, he has the sharpness and the physicality. But yeah, I haven't seen it in, in ages. <laughs> yeah, 20 years. So yeah. um, more for me, actually. Um, also, Christian Slater, Banderas, Brad Pitt. Solid yeah, cast. amazing, amazing cast of people who would go on to become too big to be in a film together unless it's one of, it's, it's like a Soderbergh movie or like Mother's Day or New Year's Eve or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. You know, Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are not being in any films together anytime soon. I mean, he did DiCaprio, but that's with Tarantino to be yeah. effectively second last film. Yeah, 96, huge year for Tom Cruise with the two different sides of him. Um, Mission Impossible and Jerry Maguire. Can we just touch briefly on Jerry Maguire? Again, Channel 10 overplayed. You know, you know, you were talking before saying like uh, that um, Born on the 4th of July dropped out of the zeitgeist, but I think it's interesting 
um, how much Jerry Maguire has dropped out of the zeitgeist because I remember growing up, this movie was everywhere, everywhere. Like you would always at video stores see the poster up even years after it came out. Um, I remember seeing that logo everywhere. The quotes, you show me the money and you had me at hello and help me help you. And like this movie- They're, they're still used. They're still separate used. Separate to their context. Yeah. Um, th- this movie was so saturated into pop culture. But today, no one talks about it. Is it just that it was just way overexposed relative to how good it is? I think it's that it was overexposed, but I think it's two other things. I think Renee Zellweger, she's still great, but she doesn't have the cachet she did 25 years ago. But more than that, Cameron Crowe, man, he has, I like Almost Famous, but he has fallen. Most of his movies, most of his movies in the early part of his career are good. I agree with, you know, that, um, yeah, he's fallen out of favor. Maybe cinephiles don't want to talk about Jerry Maguire, but this was a, this is a mainstream mass market movie. The fact that like, I guess maybe this is just getting old, but for how exposed this was, like there are other like nineties films that have way more of a cultural hold still. I I saw on TV again for the other day, Clueless, right? Also from 96 or you know, the first Mission Impossible, though that is a franchise. Interview with the Vampire has lasted, with the Vampire, um, has lasted longer. More of a cult following, I'd say. Yeah, but that seems to be a film that still exists more than Jerry Maguire. Would you, you know what I mean? It's just strange. I I know exactly what you mean. And I think it's this. Jerry Maguire was the first really big blockbuster to deal with scandal in the sports world. It's It's a relatively honest film. I appreciate it for that. But then three years later, a better template and a more searing, more serious blistering template came along for this, a much better film, Any Given Sunday. From then, there have been any number of films, Concussion, others, which have dealt with issues of how athletes are treated. But mm. the template and what has remained strong is the type of Any Given Sunday. It's not just that we've seen these narratives played over and over. It's that Jerry Maguire falls a bit out of favor because it, it's not as intense or honest as we come to expect of this genre now so i think that's why it's kind of moved away from what people expect or want in the sphere yeah it's a, it's a strange movie now it's seem that seems very 90s um for the record i like this movie i think i think you i like could, it too you could say it's not so honest it's a it's a manipulative crowd pleaser or whatever but in the better work by cameron crow there's a genuine sweetness that comes across like he really loves his characters it's not just about oh what will the audience like seeing you can tell that he's gen- he is he is a sh- is a crowd pleasing kind of guy and he's invested in these characters in this story there's things about it that don't hold up so well today like the way it treats the divorced women's club kind of as like objective derision but you know that would not fly <laughs> but uh but there is something wholesome to the no, no, this relationship can still work. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's such an, this sto- it's, it's a good story, right? It's a good story that you don't typically see in romance films or romance comedy films. Yeah. Having said that. And it has, oh, it has really interesting characters. The Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character and his dynamic with Tom Cruise, really interesting. You an Oscar for this. Yeah, like this, this movie actually has a lot going for it. Like when you look at how debased our cultural landscape is today. Get back on the camel. It's like, I don't want to be on the camel. You don't want to be on the camel? Yeah. Okay, be on the camel. That's yeah. not parody now. That just happens. Yeah, exactly. When, when you look at, yeah, it's, it's like, why, why can't we have more movies like this? Like a big crowd-pleasing blockbuster movie about characters with wholesome or not so wholesome messages, but just make it about the character. I'm fine with wholesome, by the way. 
just like I would love a wholesome movie about the power of love and trying to be a good person like Jerry Maguire to be a blockbuster these days instead of some ironic wink fest about action figures and Happy Meals. We're talking about Marvel. (laughs) But if it's not Marvel, it's going to be any number of their imitators or some other thing like that, you know? Like, think about how huge Jerry Maguire was, man. Uh, But look, and and I say this, and I agree, and I like it, but just by pure virtue of it having aged a fair bit and being so oversaturated in my childhood, I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again. Like, I've seen it a lot. Yeah, I've seen it a lot as well. And you know what? It was the film that my family were, like, a lot of Friday Night Films family, like, this isn't necessarily appropriate. Jerry Maguire, yeah, that's all right. Let's all watch it together. So It's got that family film vibe, you know? Yeah, I, even though it's an adult movie. One, one more thing that, you know, the, the, thing, the thing that I've thought most about with regard to Jerry Maguire in recent years, talking about how overexposed it was, um, a few years back, there was a exhibit in LA. Um, the Everything is Terrible, I think, is the name of the, the group. They had a, a series of weird video editing montages of esoteric VHS ephemera, basically. Those guys put together an exhibition, which is like a video store, which is entirely VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire, because there were so many of them in circulation that um, one day they they got this idea when they'd just been going to thrift shops and seeing Jerry Maguire tapes everywhere. They were like, let's let's just start collecting them. Just Tom Cruise's grin with his crow's feet. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere. And it's it's funny because I mentioned Jerry Maguire VHS, and you can see it in your mind's eye. Right, yeah. you, you it's, it's him looking down. He's half side on. He's not looking at the camera, and he's grinning. He's grinning, and that, it's lit from the back. That video was everywhere. It was like one of the. It was the video that would always be at Coles and Woolworths and Franklin's. You know, like it was. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's one of the most oversaturated movies of this era. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that I guess that's like, it. Honestly, People are just can, like, can you please? Can you think of a film? that was played more on evening television than Jerry Maguire. Man I would Black, say maybe. now, now it, uh, it ha- love actually has to be getting up there. Yeah. I wonder love if- actually has, is cyclical. Jerry Maguire just played all the time. But the thing about love actually is love actually is kind of cyclical in that it plays at Christmas, but they also play it just whenever. And I remember it playing one year, like every couple of weeks, a couple of months. I'm like, it was on, it was like, wasn't this on, two months ago and it wasn't just december to february it was just randomly in the middle of the year on two months apart on the same channel so hopefully love actually will have its jerry Maguire moment where people just don't want to think about its existence anymore look, look i like love actually i don't think it's aged well in some respects i, I, I kind of like, like love movie. actually too um i not as much as jerry Maguire, is not okay. probably but you know they're both nice enjoyable jeremy okay jeremy Maguire is much better i actually it i actually yeah but love actually you know it, it'll do um just a last point on jeremy Maguire. one of my favorite tom cruise line readings is when he's on the plane and he's describing his proposal to another passenger where he's talking about how his wife is in the lobby and he couldn't bring up the courage to propose because she knew it was coming and all the footballs were crying it's really nice yeah Again, yeah yeah earnest. and it charms renee zellweger but he um was it was it, was it, was it, was it Zellweger? No 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 she she overhears it on the plane and gets chance That's right it. yes so it's, it's it's been a while But yeah he brings that 
every man thing as well as the intensity to this role. You know, he he bring he wraps up the charm, but it's it's yeah, it's it's very very Tom Cruise. He has such a distinct style and such distinct mannerisms, right? People try to. I don't think there's ever been a really good. Ben Stiller's was funny. There's ever actually been a really on point Tom Cruise imitation. I, mean, I try. Help me. Hey, help yeah. you. But yeah. there's no one who matches that level of intensity, charisma, gorgeous looks, movie star presence. He's so full on every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard for him to share what, what film in the modern era has he... I mean, we have to remember, Val Kilmer was a bigger... Was about the same level of Tom Cruise level of fame in Top Gun. Mm. But when has he actually shared... A, the screen with a young up-and-coming brash movie star like him never he's always front and center i mean he was opposite john voight in mission impossible john voight was great uh when has he really come up a uh, russell crowe in the mommy uh, russell crowe is well established at that point yeah. right, russell crowe was already a movie star and like past his part russell crowe would not have taken that mummy role 10 years previously because it would have been below him no but he, he's, it's very rare you'll see him on screen with actor of Crows. Um, no, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, we should pop back to Mission Impossible. It all comes back to the ego. It's maybe the ego that, like, not wanting to be. I mean, I, I can't say this about Tom Cruise personally. I don't know the guy, but if you're out there, we'd love to meet up with you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not after what I'm saying at the moment. It just there's the tr- you know it it falls in line with the trend of always playing characters in movies he produces that everybody loves and that don't have many flaws. Um, you know, like not wanting to be upstaged, having to be the center of attention. But maybe it is, as you say, also a choice by directors because they know that is the quality of Tom Cruise. We shouldn't try to make him anything but the center of attention unless it's just with a romantic interest. That's about as much as we're willing to dial it down. You know, He's playing Tom sure. Cruise to some extent in every movie. Um, we talked about how he doesn't have much of a public concern, but what is relatively well known about him is that it's not just that he's a hard worker, it's that he takes a much more active role than most performers in a, produ- in a producer function mm. in leading the narrative of his films. We saw this later in the Mission Impossible series where he kept bringing on Christopher McQuarrie because Christopher McQuarrie brought the type of drama and characterization of Ethan Hunt that Cruz wanted. Mm. But because of his star palette, he can sell, you put Tom Cruise at the top of the poster, you, you're guaranteed a couple hundred million dollars. So he has enormous That's, influence what, and he exercises it in every one of his projects um, and shows. We, I, I guess we can discuss this later, but it's, it's amazing how he was not destroyed by the Scientology era. You know, I know, I know the Scientology era continues, but when Scientology became the main thing people think about when they hear Tom Cruise. The Oprah jumping on the couch incident around MI3's release, I would say it was that point. Yeah, that was when it was the first time that people people were always, there was inklings of his private life in the press, aside from his divorce, his first divorce, I should say. But this is when people, there started to be a bit of a backlash against Cruise. People Mm. started to not like him. Yeah. And Again, with Mission Impossible 3, it showed him being a nice guy, always to have a family. And each of the Mission Impossible films have done this. Each of his tentpole flagship movies have come out to say, I'm still there for everyone. I'm still yeah. the 
Jerry Maguire's good guy you know. But in but back in the year that Jerry Maguire came out, he was a bit more of an edgy Ethan Hunt who sometimes seemed a little bit dangerous and intense in the first Mission Impossible. Yeah. Speaking of, um, 96, this yeah. was... I don't think he knew at the time that it would be an action franchise. I don't think anyone did. I think they anthology. maybe hoped it's it would. It's not a franchise, it's an anthology. I, I think they, now it's serialized. I, think, I imagine they hoped it could become a series because it's, it, it's just like the James Bond type thing, you know? Like the spy goes on continuing adventures. But, um, you know, you, you only cross your fingers whenever you take on any big endeavor like that. Mission Impossible is, works really well. Um, and it holds up better than all the others because it's less of an action movie. It's you, a classic spy thriller. And De Palma's dialogue and the staging, it's so noir. It's so heavily stylized. I think the script is by Robert, really well. Robert Town and David Coep, though it wouldn't surprise me if De Palma did some writing on the side, as he's known to do. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, the, the dialogue and also the staging. But the staging, even more than the dialogue, is so noir. And it's so, um, I love the larger than life style of De Palma, you know, like the, the canted angles in this movie, uh, going into overdrive. The restaurant. The re- yeah. yeah. The restaurant scene I was thinking of fantastic. And like the, some See, of that the- restaurant scene, it's so, okay. It, 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 in any other hands of a director, it could have been just the standard filler scene. And in the hands of a director, that dialogue would have come across as stilted and ridiculous. But he matched it with the visual so well. Oh, it's and yeah, it's standout. Yeah, 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 yeah. Standout um, sequence. Um, I really I like. Say, I've I've been to the I've been to Prague. I've never seen that square that empty. But hey, it's a movie, so yeah. All uh, the all the bridge. True, but yeah, I uh, I've, I have as well. But um, movie magic. I like Mission yeah. Impossible, the first one. Um, moving on. Big well, uh, well, we want to talk about the other Mission Impossible's and else. Um, it has a special place in my in movie watching. I, I really like it. I, I, I like that the twist didn't come... They, they didn't treat the twists as massive surprises, given they were pretty straightforward. It has still one of the best high sequences at Langley. The train chase at the end, it's phenomenal. It, um, it is I, silly, though. The escalation to that level of stunt, they wanted a big finish, but it's a shame that that became the main thing that the Mission Impossible series became about. I think it would have been better if they'd stuck to a balance like this, where there maybe was one or two... Big, big bombastic action scenes, but keep the focus on the spy thriller aspect. But it's just become something else now. Yep. Uh, as, as it's again moved from a anthology, here's this director coming in to put their own spin on it. To here's the Chris story McQuarrie. We here's this director that yeah. I like. Yeah. Who who gives me the vehicle I want? Yeah. As opposed to uh, here, here's somebody to, I know. want a differently stylized film. Yeah. So well, having was, said that, they're great. Like my, my ranking is one. I, it's, I've revised since we last started Mission Impossible. It goes one six five four two three. So there was a long gap in Tom Cruise's career while he spent over a year shooting Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, the infamous long extensive takes that Kubrick would have crews do dozens per shot. Yeah. Um, it's a very a, good movie, which we have every, talked about extensively on a 1999 yeah. episode. It's what about a great, flashbacks? It's a great film. Um, I think one of Kubrick's best, 
But what's interesting about the use of Tom Cruise is that Tom and Nicole aren't just uh, aren't here for the glamorous power couple, which is how they typically have been used before um, in appearances together during their years as a as a big Hollywood power couple. Here, I think Kubrick is using them for the intimacy that they bring, and also perhaps as an inversion of the audience's expectations about them, because this is. Uh, a film that's really digging into characters' sore spots and feelings of inadequacy in a relationship, especially Tom Cruise's. And the um, it's it's very it's almost perverse casting a real life couple in in this uh, in this sorry in these roles. Yeah. I really like Cruise's casting in this. It's the first one, even more so in the firm which shows him as a young, handsome, flashy, successful, extremely confident person, again, reflective of his real-life persona. But at this point, it's not saying this guy's 22 anymore. It's showing there's a maturity to his screen presence. Kubrick understands this. And we, moreover, we see it unravel when he's in the gift shop, sorry, the costume shop, when the great scene with the call girl, which is my favorite scene in the film, beyond the um, crazy sequence in the mansion later, he, this, where we, again we see Tom Cruise come up against real challenges to even his breadth of confidence. Yes, or his character, he, I should say. His character shows the typical Cruise confidence, but the way that Kubrick harnesses the that the intensity that we keep talking about for Cruise is interesting because here the intensity mostly comes out as a way of um, projecting his feelings of inadequacy. You know, it really comes out as a way of expressing uh, the his anxieties in a subdued Kubrick style way, but that's where I think are the, the loud points of the performance in Eyes Wide Shut, you know, his moment, moments of fear and, and doubt. I, it does so well to contrast it with, at the beginning of the film, he's, his character is in, confronted with an extreme situation which would make most people feel panic or threatened. I'm referring to the potential imminent death of a young woman in his friend's party. Mm-hmm. He handles it so calmly and so across but then we see him confronted with different but still confronting circumstances later and we just see his character slow it starts slowly start to consume him yeah so it's a contrast which kubrick knew so well to set up and the dream surreal like elements which shows Cruz being so nonplussed the great bit where he returns to the costume shop in the middle oh, of the man. day yeah what do i do oh everything's okay now but when we last saw you no 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 everything's all right yeah and with any actor you would see your own misgivings reflected but with Cruz, it's just so much more pronounced because it's underlined by him being so cool otherwise and everything's on kubrick is doing well he's obviously seen every tom cruise film and he knows how to play with his persona yeah um the next big run for 1999 a really interesting year for tom cruise roles with him matching up with auto directors magnolia Frank T.A. Yeah, he plays Frank T.J. Mackey, a name I will never forget. A guy who basically gives self-help talks for incels. Would you say that's an accurate description? I'd say that is an extremely accurate description. Can can you, and actually, it's a nice little world. Imagine if Tom Cruise had never become an actor, but one of the career where he could use and utilize his intensity. He could have been a self-help trainer or a motivational speaker, and he would have been really successful. It's perfect casting by PTA. PTA always 
shows that he understands movie stars better than maybe they understand themselves better than at least casting directors and directors have, 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 I think he has a talent for seeing the underlying qualities. And when it comes to Tom Cruise, you know, how can you contextualize this larger than life intensity? Where do you see that in life outside of films? No, you've seen it a few times, just moving away to his public persona. Um, some of the times he's blown up a little in public. Um, the famous Peter, o- infamous Peter Overton interview, the, stu- the stunt where someone squirted water in his face on a red carpet. Um, we had Adele Drover on the show a few times, a film critic for all credits, and she interviewed Tom Cruise on the red carpet of The Mummy. And she was telling me about it. And there's a bit where he's just chatting to her and he's talking about the experience of The Mummy. And then he just stops, stares directly into her eyes and says, I want to thrill you. And he was just like, what, what do I do now? What do I say? I'm frozen in space and time. She was and thrilled. She was thrilled. Well, well, not by the mommy, but I think he's on the movies. Yeah. But in that moment, in that he moment, succeeded. Can you, imagine, can you imagine Tom Cruise like staring into your face? Like, so like, just, <laughs> and it's like I want to thrill you. Like, <laughs> I can't I, imagine I, I, it. Later, I'd still be frozen. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine it because of all the Tom Cruise watches I've been doing. But it has been a fun rewatch. Yeah, yeah. He makes fun mostly right. just movies you can consume easily. So speaking of rewatches and Magnolia, you haven't seen that basically since it came out, right? No, I haven't well, seen it since release. Did you really see it when it when it was released? Like, did you see that in cinemas? Because that would have been one of those like bad parenting choices, but it was like, I'll forgive it. Um <laughs> I just saw a lot of films as a kid. Look, look, they know I like the movies and they just said, you go, have a fun day. And they didn't go to the local cinema. They didn't really care. It wasn't an ultra-violent movie. So, so seriously, you saw man. Magnolia at the cinema? Yeah. Dude. Anyway, yeah. we won't it's, discuss it's Glenn's what? age on the show. <laughs> Suffice to say that... that uh... I was too young to see this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I was too young from a... Yeah, from the, from the view of the classifications board and general uh, morality. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, it was either that or American Pie, and I just didn't want to see American Pie. Right. Well, you made the right I choice, I like son. Um, oh, no, well, actually, today... At that I'd... point, I was... That was the point in my life where I was just too cool for, too cool for film school. And so like American Pie, nah... And I've since mellowed and I, I do like that. Series, well, so. I'll uh, drop a bombshell now and say that if you ask me now whether I wanted to watch American Pie or Magnolia, I would always pick American Pie. And not just because Magnolia is three hours. Magnolia, I enjoyed as a teenager, but watching it again a few years back, I was shocked at how indulgent, messy, overblown, just goddamn loud it is. Um, and three hours of it. By halfway through, it's like, oh my God, too much, too much. Just rein it back in. Like, does every single story always have to be at the highest moment of intensity all the time? Maybe that could have worked in a movie half this long. Maybe. But um, yeah, Tom Cruise's bits are a highlight because at least the histrionics are well contextualized and because he commands the screen. Anyway, I've soured on Magnolia. I, I can't say, I can't offer too much criticism because I haven't watched it in quite a while. What did stand out to me was Cruz's performance, which was just so, so in your face. 
and more intense than any other individual. There's more intensity in the scenes he does in Magnolia than any individual scene in any other film he's done. So I appreciate it for that. Also, and Chris can see, I have a inordinately large frog collection. I actually just made a short called The Frog and the Furious, which is a Fast and the Furious parody entirely with frogs. I love frogs. So this part of this film, without doing spoilers, is always stuck in my mind. Frogs feature prominently in Magnolia. Thank God. Thank, thank you for that, PTA. Moving on from Magnolia, uh, Mission Impossible 2. Oh, man. Okay, well, we which, talking, you know, this is before, this is like a midpoint in terms of what the series was about. I would say up to three, it was still sort of a spy movie, but it was increasingly an action movie. Two is way more of an action movie than, than Mission Impossible 1, but it still has a quite extensive espionage plot. Not a smart one, like the one It's just in, notorious. It's the exact same plot as Notorious. Yes, you're right. It is. It is the same plot as Notorious. Um, damn you, Robert Town. He, he, yeah, Robert Town wrote the script for this one and Days of Thunder. This is the guy who wrote Chinatown in the last detail. Talk about selling out. Okay, I have a qualification on it. But first, I just have to note that, you know what this Monday is, Chris? Monday, the 18th of May. Is it like everyone watch Mission Impossible 2 day or like... Do uh, I don't know ride ride side saddle on a motorcycle motor, motorcycle or something like that? I don't know. Well, I'll definitely be riding side saddle on a motorcycle through the Helms through the national park as Tom Cruise is doing in this. Um, this is gonna make us feel old. It came out 20 years ago on Monday. Mission oh, Mission Impossible 2. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's so uh, a little bit yeah, of a there. I, I like this movie because. It showed Brighton Lasands as a spot, stop, stop point for a major action sequence of lots of explosions, where it's just the place he used to go there as a kid and, you know, and hang around on the beach. I have fun with this. It's a very bad movie, um, but it's so stupid that it is entertaining. The action scenes are not up to the standards of the best John Woo work, but are still really cool compared to most stuff you see coming out of Hollywood. It is also, though, like, when did... Um, Tom Cruise become like a John Woo bullet ballet kind of, you know, <laughs> pirouetting, you know, like the jewel, jewel shooting and diving through the air. Suddenly he's an expert in all the John Woo type fighting. But the action, and it's practically shot, whether it be the motorcycle ride, the stuff on the beach, the stuff where he rides the motorcycle through the flames after the car's exploded. It's really cool. Yeah, it and is it actually really real good. It is real? Yeah, it is actually really good. Did and they rip hard. off the, the gun in the sand trick in Bad Boys 2? Yes, they did. Yeah. Only three years later. Yeah. And we have to remember, though, this came out at the, immediately after another prominent, prominent film shot in City of the Matrix, where everything had to be crazy and over the top and large life. Obviously, yeah. the Matrix this one, and elements were befitting it more than Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, and Mission Impossible 2, is unlike the Matrix, is actually set in Sydney, though. Matrix is, you know... In, in the Matrix, then, at the time we're not when... using Sydney iconography. Like, it's the sky... It's like it, we filmed in the city, whereas, like, Mission Impossible 2 was like, here's the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, this was at the time, like, Attack of the Clones, where the dollar was at a point where it was inexpensive enough for production offsets to set major films in Sydney. I really like walking around where and seeing in this film, knowing the locations now, a major set piece taking place. I think it's the ML, the Governor Philip Tower, stuff happening around Mrs. McQuarrie's chair, the manly heads, um, down in Brian and the Sands, obviously the center of Sydney City. It's really fun just seeing Sydney casually uses the backdrop in all its glory. And remember, this is the time, it was perfectly timed because this is when the entire world 
was looking at Sydney, the Olympics are about to happen. Everyone was talking about Sydney 2000. So this was, hey, before you get the Olympics, come see a bit about Sydney. So it's a nice it ad. Very in the cultural zeitgeist. This is a very 2000 movie. In so many ways, Style. even just the name, like MI2, like ID4, yeah. T2. I, Those names I, went out of fashion after MI2, I think. That was just it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I rewatched this the other day. I watched it, I saw it in cinemas too, and I watched it a few times over the years. It was my least favorite Mission Impossible type film. It's moved up in my rankings. The reason is, I, I, one is still my favorite, and it's a, and it's a hallmark of action films for me. I think more in, 19, in 2000 and now, it was so jarring to see the shift in tone from one to two. With enough distance, I like it. I appreciate that it's an anthology series. And I like, as we talked about earlier, the just crazy, brilliant um, height of the action. Hmm. What does get me is... I'm glad you've come around on that. I remember actually, I'm not sure whether it was just off air or actually in a previous. No, we were talking about Fallout and we had an extended bit. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember um, you hadn't seen MI2 in a while and me and Virat were defending it for the same reasons. We were saying like the action is just so over the top that it becomes like, how can you not love this? And you were like, no, 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 it's just stupid. I'm glad you've joined the team. Like that motorcycle bit at the end is just glorious. And it's Look, so stupid, like him hanging on the side of a motorbike and shooting people with like no arms on the handlebars. Like it's so dumb, but it's great. It's <laughs> really well executed. Through the air. Nothing compared to um, catapulting himself backwards, kick someone in the face. Yeah. Um, kicking a gun out of the sand. Yeah. Um, jumping off the motorcycles and like attacking each other in midair. Oh it's man, cool. I'm glad you've seen the light. And the thing is like, John Woo executes it. Maybe it's the lack of CG everywhere. Um, but I also think it's somehow it's more grounded than say like the propelling the, uh, propelling yourself at somebody else in the air um, in midair in Fast and Furious 6 or whatever it was. Like when you compare uh, it to the, the recent equivalents of over the top ridiculous action, it's somehow it's more tangible even as it's similarly stupid. I I agree. It's a lot of fun to watch. And honestly, part of the reason I watched it now is I wanted the bit, I felt I'm in the mood. We talked in recent weeks previously, bit of, um, bit of fun. Honestly, not to treat the prevailing situation as anything, but very, very serious that it is, but it's nice to watch a film where Tom Cruise takes on a killer virus in Sydney and saves the day. Yeah. <laughs> True. Oh, this is, um, I, I still look. I, I do like it more than I did initially. I still have a number of issues with it. The first of all, the whole plot is not just stupid, but it's ex- excessively stupid in that the entire plot happens because Ethan Hunt went on a holiday. The replacement they got to send him in turned rogue, like everyone in the IMF does, and that starts the whole thing. We have a serious recruitment screening problem in this agency. Yeah, this, this kind of like just happens later is right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take your shit together, guys. What the hell? Why are um, we always mobbing after IMF is mess? Yeah, I, I also watched Fallout. Uh, the, uh, the other week and there's the bit where the CIA director says I don't trust any you to sort this out so bring you all in in the context of the film like what are you doing but watching Mission Impossible so I'm thinking this makes sense doing the right thing you're the ice man of the situation you're clearly got your head on head screwed on right well interesting comparison I think we're going to skip over uh, Vanilla Sky right I haven't seen that since TV like 10 15 years ago I, I 
and I'm going to say this for Last Samurai too. The Vanilla Sky and Last Samurai, I saw on TV, but I saw them disjointedly. I haven't seen the film in one sitting. <laughs> Me too, I've seen actually. Sections over Both the years. But you I, know, I just avoided Vanilla Sky because actually, before we get into Vanilla Sky, I just note one thing about Mission Impossible 2. It, it frustrates me that it's the same style of script as Mission Impossible 1 as in very noirish, but Wu's action Robert Town. And style. Yeah, Robert yeah, Town. Yeah, exactly, Robert Town. But this, the style is working against, the director's working against the style of the script. If mm. De Palma directed it, it would have been much more clear what Town was going for. But here, it's yeah. Wu's more in showing the well, Cepius and the cliff than the interactions between the characters, which was so much more consequential. So that yeah. really valued the film for me. I agree. Rob, um, Robert Towns, I mean, yeah, it's the guy who wrote Chinatown. He has a handle on this noirish style. And Brian De Palma is a guy who always pays tribute to classic crime films in particular. You know, perfect match. Brian, uh, John Woo is more interested in this kind of romantic melodrama. John Woo is more interested in this strange romantic melodrama so he's great at high emotion moments you know the peaks of the narrative but not so good at actually making you care about the connective tissue along the way yeah i agree i think and it's a serious letdown of the film for me i'm having said that and in the space of you just kind of want to watch a film that doesn't take that doesn't not only doesn't take itself seriously at all but is a really fun intelligent kind of dumb and it's a total it's a weird uh, thing to say but it is a it is very precise in how in the level of dumb it's going for yeah and it works it's very watchable at, very watchable it's mission impossible to vanilla sky i haven't I, I haven't seen the film in its entirety so i don't want to comment on it i avoided it at the time because just the parodically bad reviews it was like a cats of its time where everyone just said this is the worst thing what is tom cruise doing i was i mean i haven't seen it in a long long time but i was intrigued by it as a kid I really, I, I guess I just need to watch the Spanish one, Open Your Eyes, that it's based on. Also starring Penelope Cruz in the same role. Yeah. So Penelope Sky. I... Minority Report, right? Is that Minority next? Minority Report is next. A film that I saw with my optometrist father in cinemas, and he had a lot to say about the, <laughs> all the stuff with the eyes. Like, Glenn, this can never happen. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's very practical. But my dad took me to this. I thought he might. My optometrist dad didn't voice any complaints about that. He was just like, yeah, it's a good movie. Of course, this is real. That's going to happen. Take yeah. care of your eyes. Um, yeah. So Colin I really Farrell, like I really, well, I, I like it too. Colin Farrell plays the Iceman role in this one. Yeah. Colin Farrell, early Colin Farrell. It, yeah. it, it just shows how good he was going to be. And he was, oh, yeah. he was good in this. But he it showed his star power. Yeah. He's great. But yeah, everything his character says from the very beginning, you know, there's plot reasons why we're made, he's framed in such a way and we're made to dislike him. But everything he's saying all along makes perfect sense. Like, I'm here to investigate this thing before it gets rolled out nationwide. Seems like something funny could could maybe go go on with this. Raises some questions we'd like to uh, investigate further. And it's like... Uh, it comes in and says, why shouldn't we be questioning whether there's any flaws in the system? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? We're stopping murders. Shut up, um, yeah, suited government guy. Exactly. Like, no, no. You're the good guy. You're on point. Yeah, exactly. And it and it's like he has that cocky kind of arrogance about him, you know, that leads you to think, oh, maybe he's a bad guy, or, um, oh, you know, it's easy to frame him as bad. But it's like he could be the protagonist of the movie and played by Tom Cruise with a similar kind of cockiness, and and you could be easily be manipulated to go along with this guy. Um, but then it could have almost happened. But then there's that great moment 
when I love the scene in the lift where he realizes that the siren's going off and that he thinks, oh shit, Tom Cruise is about to kill me. And at that point, you know, no one is overcoming Cruise's sheer level, Cruise's character's sheer level of confidence. So we know the protagonist very clearly, but yes, um, he could have been the lead. Yeah. Tom Cruise could have played either, both of them could have played either role, respectively. And also Max von Sydow passed away recently. Really good in this. Really good. It's, I mean, Max von Sydow could do, could do a role like this in his sleep and he does, you know. I think he did. Yeah, he's great. Effortlessly great. Yeah. Um, we, have, we have to acknowledge though that they rip off the shot from LA Confidential where Kevin Spacey's character is shot. Yeah. Yeah, that's taken direct. I saw it. I'm like, wait a minute. That film was six years ago. We've seen this. It's very obvious. LA Confidential made a big impact. Yeah, still um, a great film. Yeah. Um, so Minority Report, I, I do like, but I don't like as much as a lot of people, I think, because I find it kind of weird and tonally a mess. Um, I think it it has a great concept and I think it actually picks up towards the end in the, the lead up to the final act change in particular, I think is just Spielberg at his best in the kind of contraption uh, filmmaking where you're seeing characters playing to what they're being told is going to happen. Um, and the way it's choreographed as well as just the intrigue of the plot, fantastic. But my, it has the same f- big flaw. I think that the, his film he was making at the same time AI has, which is, badly placed humor that clashes with the tone of the film the movie generally has this kind of grim look and feel but there's strange comic relief for example in this sequence where um tom cruise is running from the jetpack guys which is just and it's this wacky sort of music or near wacky music the whole thing the whole scene actually is really wacky like just the the look of it with these guys flying all over the place and like it's like um, Keystone Cops kind of thing, you know, just like slapstick pitfalls. And it's like, aren't these meant to be the fearsome <laughs> futuristic cop squad that we saw at the beginning of the movie? <laughs> um, so, oh yeah, they all become stormtroopers suddenly. It, it's just, the, actually the whole thing is like, this movie would be better if it were less of an action film. Like early on at the, the tail end of that sequence is like a fist fight between Colin Farrell and Tom Cruise on uh, assembly lines at a car factory. And it's like- Which ends uh, with a really cool shot in fairness. It does, yes. But it's like, aren't these two guys just like basically really good, but ordinary cops who skew towards the bureaucrat angle these days? <laughs> like, you know, are they, how they're both like suddenly James Bond. All right. So Tom Cruise, I understand if he's James Bond because his role is to go in as we see the opening sequence and do these crazy stuff. That's true. Yeah. But Colin Farrell. Colin Colin Farrell. Okay. Colin Farrell's characterization is very much like Jeremy Renner's characterization in Mission Impossible 4, Hmm. where, yeah, they're a bureaucrat, but they actually have this darker side. They're there for a reason in that function. Again, Jeremy Renner is playing the Iceman in Mission Impossible 4. We'll get to that one later. I, on the matter of the humor, there's one bit of humor in this film that works really well where he's going through with the new eyes and he gets scanned and he's like, hello, Mrs. X. I hope you enjoyed that. Oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. He's like, what? We'll get, to the, we'll get to the technology in a sec. The place where it was in most stark contrast and came off worst was in the aforementioned eye sequence with Peter Stromer. Peter Stromer is playing this quirky character, but Peter Stromer is only really good if he's doing comedy at really dark, Fargo-esque comedy. And it was off, really off kilter here. 
Yeah, but it's not it's not as off kilter as like the weird slapstick and and like the um, let's see how you know some the person playing saxophone reacts when someone flies through their window. Really broad type stuff we had earlier, but yeah, it, it's, oh yeah, like that, that you know that belongs in Tomorrow Never Dies in the sequence where the motorcycle falls into the houses. Like that's what I think it was ripping off that that sort of style a little. That's Maybe yeah, I I reckon it's been a it's kind of like a classic film comedy thing. It's been and around this, and it's. Forever. Dark movie. And this is a movie about child abduction. Yeah, this and movie's these dark. Who are enslaved in this goo to. It looks stop dark. It's, it has creepy imagery. Um, it has this. See where she's screaming detached. at him to run in the house? Yeah, it has, it has this bleak, desaturated look to it. Um, nightmare technology all over the place, like the way that they keep people in storage. Yeah, the, there was no place for goofy humor in this. But. No. Um, also, there's moments where the script is just kind of like too dumb. Like when he talks to the lady um, who... In the greenhouse. Yeah, oh, and, and she's... Of course she's gardening. Like this character is in every other movie. Yeah, exactly. She's Why got, wouldn't she call the cops right away? Exactly. But she's, she speaks in movie catchphrases and does everything in the most dramatic way. And it's just like, this could have been written a lot better. <laughs> And but, I don't want to ruin the ending, but the twist is really good as to how a murder that happened some years ago took place. But to believe that the events that immediately followed happened in the manner which they did, it's, it's, it's a fascinating concept, but it's a bit of a stretch in a film that's really trying to be grounded and gritty and realistic. Yeah. Um, on, on the matter of realism, this film has aged exceptionally well. It doesn't look nearly as futuristic now as it did in 2002. A lot of the stuff has come to pass with how we interact with tech, um, ads, and how they engage yeah. us. Some of it is... Eye scanning. Yeah, the, um, that's right. But there's, uh, it's interesting a few little things where it's like, okay, they, they didn't quite see how that would work. Like um, They detect him when he, he moves on the train, but uh, they don't detect from an eye scan, but they don't detect uh, Anderton when uh, just regular subway ads scan him and recognize his name. And, you know, we all know now that if a, uh, if there were, sorry, if corporations were using an ID uh, detecting technology, that would definitely be linked up with a government system where any wanted criminal would get triggered straight away. I'm, it doesn't. I'm, it doesn't ultimately of, matter, but it's just. You know, one of those Chris, things. I'm kind of glad that in those two that everyone involved was everyone considered wasn't trying to commodify and consolidate all of our data. At least wasn't <laughs> ways to do so. So I'm going to give the film a bit of leeway in that regard. Yeah. But yes, um, sadly, it does not hold up. Yeah, and you know they they but, get, but you know good predict the good predictive qualities. There's another well, cute one in here, which is on the train. Everyone's looking at amazing newspapers with moving images on them instead of just using a phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it they, not hold up. we can find ways to make paper, you know, hold a display on it. But yeah. Why has that always been a thing? Like moving images on t-shirts? No, that, that people just haven't gone there. I think it's just the, um, the desire to, for a still picture to move has always been there. You know, cinema fulfilled that in some way but then it's like you know you've got to have the moving paintings like in harry potter and you've got to have the, yeah the moving t-shirt and the the photos that move on newspapers we just want to want to uh ruin the art of photography <laughs>
Yeah. Also, I've got to say, I'm willing to let this slide because it's such a good movie, but there's a basic logical flaw at the premise of this film where the sequence of events which would cause Jonathan to go on the run and be accused of a murder would not have happened but for he's having gone on the run in the first place. Oh yeah, it's a it's an interesting paradox that's in a lot of these a lot of science fiction films. It's an interesting contradiction, but um, we they didn't explore it in Minority Report, but I'm okay with that because uh, I mean I don't think we're going to go into total spoilers of the entire movie here, but I can foresee him uh, without having gone on the run ending up in that same situation. Like if he just was given a phone call, for example, and tipped off on an ordinary day days later. Yeah, I, I forgive it because it's... It's it, sort of like... It's, it's a universe where it's plausible and the film's just so damn good. I don't yeah, care that much. But it could work in such a way that there are branching timelines that all sort of end up at this destination. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. Um, my report, great movie, possibly Cruz's most underrated and the first of two collaborations with Spielberg, the other which is not good. I haven't seen War of the Worlds in ages. Um Look, it's nowhere near as good as Minority Report. Minority Report has the really cool sci-fi concept and visuals going for it. Um, and the, the whole idea of being unable to escape fate, great. War of the Worlds similarly has amazing visual design and amazing sci-fi concepts. Just the, the emergence scene, the concept of how the um, aliens are harvesting people to create their terraforming liquid you know terrifying had to be the matrix yeah true but it is it is a terrifying visual i think spielberg the visualist is in very fine form in this film and i think the script is not nearly that good right on war of the worlds i really don't like this film it's probably my least favorite tom cruise film i really like my book i I like the orson wells radio uh, radio play i've listened to i've actually got it behind me on my my one of the few tape decks i have it's great nice the original 50s movie is is quite good but the 50s movie highlights what's really bad about this and it leads into the worst qualities of both spielberg and Cruz. in that they've taken a story that is a really strong metaphor for concerns about foreign influence and foreign invasion and the impact of the other and turned and distilled it to its less consequential and significant elements, which are its action, mm. and just gone with that. Cruz obviously is an action star, but this is entirely an action-driven film. What is not an action-driven narrative, but is still trying to have the grandeur of it. Spielberg too, he can do grand storytelling, but he's really just interested in the action here, and it leads to an action-oriented flick, of likes of which we've seen so many times before. So much is based on War of the Worlds. We've seen so much come in the wake of the 50s films. So many have done it better, including the likes of Independence Day, which was at that point incredibly saturated. We didn't need, the, no one needed this film. No, but so it doesn't add anything to the genre or oeuvre. Of I would argue that the main, the main thing it added, which was fresh at the time, was the very 9-11 inspired imagery of the emergence and the attacks by, initially by the aliens. Um, and just a way of visualizing that kind of terror um, that that's probably the biggest contribution of the film and probably what's best about it. I think the action sequences are, are, in general are great. I think that the scene where um, they hide in, in the basement and the aliens come down beyond, yeah, the aliens, a goofy design um, is a great suspense piece. 
yeah, I think the film has a lot going for it. It just has not very interesting characters um, and a not convincing script. As a reflection on 9-11, we have to remember this is only, a few, it's still a credible, it's still a very raw incident. It's only a few, then it was even then only a few years since. I don't yeah. think we needed a literal articulation of it. If we were to get one, there were other films in production at the time, which more directly focused on the incident, which were much better but- and which gave a better conception of not only what it was like to be there on the day, but the lasting impact. I don't know, man. I, I think the, um, just in terms of updating the way that we de- depict mass destruction, I think it had some value. Um, and I do think that initial emergence is, is really scary. Just the sound and the image. Yeah. I, 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 I don't, cause again, I compare it to like the fifties film where you see it come out of the ground and it just starts going from one person to another to another. But here it's just such larger scale destruction, at least at the beginning that mm-hmm. you don't have a, a you don't have an idea of the personal yes later in the film later in each of the war the world's narratives it trans it goes to a more macro level and that's where it belongs but at the beginning you needed the more intimate focus which all the adaptations got and this was just too generalized to really um hit home as i think it was hoping to because you just see the thing this giant thing come out of the ground and people not the foreground even people we know but the background just get zapped mm-hmm. so it's a very different tone i'm i'm not a fan um, we skipped a couple of cruise films by the way yeah, Last Samurai, which I haven't seen in its entirety in in, in one go. We I did. remember there being one fantastic sequence early beginning when he trains a gun on a soldier and threatens to shoot him if he doesn't shoot Tom Cruise first and the soldier misses, i.e. simulating an onslaught into battle and how they're not ready. That scene was great. The rest of the movie I didn't like so much, at least what I saw of it. But I haven't seen the whole thing, so I'll refrain from commenting. I agree. It's very generic, very stock standard, but I haven't seen it in ages. So we should talk about one we skipped though, which I think is one of his best performances and just a great movie. Collateral. I I saw this in cinemas and I rewatched it about a month ago now. It is starring Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. It's Michael Mann. Tom Cruise plays the bad guy for one, properly, like a proper straight up bad guy for once. It it, it attracted a lot of attention at the time, casting Cruise in this role. But he's perfect for it because his character, like Cruz himself, is sometimes so polished that there's a mystery of what's really behind the charm and the, the pretty face. So in this character it is all surface, you know, the, real, the nice suit. Um, Tom Cruise is a silver fox looking great, by the way. But yeah, um, the nice suit. Can we, can we really can we even now call Tom Cruise a silver fox? I appreciate he has silver hair in this, but <laughs> he looks like thirty. He's something. a Richard Gere. Like, I want to look fox. like Tom Cruise when I'm fifty-six. God damn it! Right? Yeah. Um. He uh he looks great. Um. But he is his character is a psychopath. You know. But um. Again, it's it's a great harnessing of. Cruz's blankness. I think he can be a really expressive actor, but I do think there can be a blankness to him. Um, and yeah, he's, his character is just so like sharp and pointed. I so love how before this, after this, there's so many moralizing 
expositing philosophical hitmen, Cruz maybe did it best because all the soliloquies, all the stuff he comes out with, it works with not just him trying to justify it to himself and the audience, but egging the Jamie Foxx character to go along with him. So it serves a narrative function, but also you have these long car rides through the gorgeous renderings of New York City by man, where a bit of reflection LA. works in the lower, sorry, LA, excuse me, in the lower moments amidst um, much more acute, more singular and highly stylized, good depictions of action cinema. Yeah. The, the balance works really well. Yeah. This is the first um, digit, full digital film. I think man yeah, he played with digital cameras with Ali. And I wonder if he picked up this project just because he thought, oh, Taxi Cab at Night, that's a perfect uh, demo for, that's that, yeah, that's a perfect demo for the capabilities of digital cameras. This was a script originally written by Australian writer Stuart Beatty, who went on to direct the film of Tomorrow When the War Began. Um, but yeah, the, the script had, it, there's no credits on it. Yeah. Um, I doubt the script was was anywhere near as good as the film we we have now. Um, there have been some uncredited rewrites by first Frank Darabont and then Michael Mann to get to the version that on screen now, which feels very Michael Mann. The depiction of the police um, activity and the investigative side of it is so Mann. Um, but yeah, this film is a great high concept kind of thriller. You know, I, I am chained to this guy doing evil deeds. What do I do? Um, it's visually beautiful. I love how crisp and elegant um, man's imagery is at the same time that he's seeking a realistic you are there documentary look. He manages to strike that balance between naturalism and poeticism in a way that I don't think anybody else who is making these kind of handicam action thriller type movies ever has. Um, it's really well plotted. The, the final, um, the final full circle kind of reveal is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but pl- but it's possible. Massive. No, it's. I I think it goes beyond the levels of plausibility. It's not it's implausible. I appreciate they're in the same location. But it's, it's too much of a stretch. Well, I I actually agree with you. I just mean it's not implausible to the sense of like I am completely checking out of the movie. This would not happen. But it definitely is a setback. Where you think this more than likely. It's more than that. I agree. You can't watch it without thinking, really, but it's not totally implausible. It's it's going for such a tone of it's not just it's crazy coincidence, but wanting to imp- Tom Cruise and man wanting to impress so much upon you, and and it has it has a it's trying to go for a searing philosophical edge. It doesn't work when you have what is such a convoluted twist. I yeah. know it could happen, but the odds of it happening are just too much for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's a mission. Impo- it's a twist that belongs in Mission Impossible. Right. Yeah. Um, on the ending, I like it stylistically. What actually happens on the train doesn't make sense to me, but just watching it back and and, and watching it uh, fifteen years ago, but I like the way the sequence plays out. Not as much as the club sequence. The club sequence is amazing. All the action scenes are great. The final one on the end with on the train, that. What happened could have happened. It's just the way that it's visually staged. Maybe needs to be tweaked to be more believable. Yeah, I, I but this, that. But, but that, I could, that is a failing of the film. But the but I could totally buy that event happening. 
but but Michael Mann has I, I it is amidst the shaky cam aesthetic has a very deliberate direction in the entire film up until that point where he just lets it go. I feel it lets it go a little. I agree. What else is there to say about Collateral? I like Jada Pinkett Smith. Yep. I like all the actors in this. They're all good. Yeah, it's a, interesting to see Mark Ruffalo so young playing the kind of role that's so different. Hollywood's to- never known quite what to do with him. Yeah, he's a strange actor. He belongs more, I think, I in indie films. But um, I don't have really much to say. The Hulk. Yeah, basically, I love Michael Mann. I love that Tom Cruise finally got to play a villain. My sister always used to say that she found Tom Cruise creepy. I agree. There is that creepy side to him. There's something like not natural in. We we talk about how oversized he is, and that in, in his dramatic presentation, but. The larger-than-life persona can be really entertaining in the context of a film, but he's not a a person who often projects things in a way that causes, you know, that drives real empathy. Would you agree with that? Like that, it's more abstracted because there's so much showmanship to it. In that regard, playing a psychopath, I think, is perfect. I think he. I, I think what you're talking about befits narrative drama narrative driven drama and plot driven drama rather yeah. than character driven drama cruised and I, really, I was really saving to talk about this later when we talk about his lesser and a few of the films he's done in the past few years when he's moved from character driven stuff to plot driven stuff it's never been as strong this is a little different in that it has a very strong plot it's very clear it, it's incredibly plot driven but the characters are very distinct and very, very strong. When the car flip yeah. happens, it's amazing, but I absolutely believe it would happen. And the inversion of everything that comes to know about Tom Cruise, it was the first time he'd played a fallen out villain. It was, it was great. He was willing to experiment a little more. He wanted to, he's always wanted to build this image of being a larger than life, great guy, but he's at the point in his career, far beyond the point in his career, where he can play more than one villainous role and his public persona wouldn't change. Compared to Tom Hanks, where he's experienced with the villains a few times, his persona has absolutely not changed. The thing is, people love Collateral. You know? It's a great movie. It's one of his his better ones. Absolutely. But people love this movie. It's still really popular. Why has he not played a villain again? And I think that's when we're going to talk about next. Around this time, he started to... Uh, change his focus in films. He just did that cameo in Goldmember. He's about to do Mission Impossible 3. But remember, this is the time when there's a bit of a public backlash against Tom Cruise. Yeah. People, uh, South Park happened. Well, look, the promo, the, this actually was all launched from the interviews he was doing to promote Mission Impossible 3, actually. So a lot of people think that the MI3 box office was greatly affected by Cruise's uh, antics and outbursts at the time. Yeah. I mean, South Park to that point, had never had an episode even temporarily shelled. But this, the allegedly, as it was reported by some outlets, Tom Cruise exercised his power through Paramount and got the episode um, moved along for a bit. It was ultimately aired. But then that engendered even more notoriety and controversy in it. Mm. Um, it lent the public perception that this was a guy that was only overly intense but took himself way too seriously. 
yeah. which meant that now he had to start doing roles, A, where he could show he doesn't take himself seriously, Tropic Thunder, gold member, great cameos, more of a Tropic Thunder, which we'll get to in a minute, but roles where it shows that he is a caring family guy, like in his next film, Mission Impossible 3, where, he's sitting, where he has a partner, where he's organizing parties for her, but he's still looking after his recruits and trying to do his Mission Impossible thing. Interesting, because I was thinking that this look at me, I'm such a nice guy kind of thing about his later roles, especially the Mission Impossible series, which is his baby as a producer, uh, was as a response to the backlash for Scientology. But that, you know, would have predate, the Mission Impossible 3 would predate that, you know? Yes. The back, yeah. Um, I wonder if it was just J.J. Abrams' touch taking it in a soap opera type direction because that's his bread and butter. Um, and also... He was getting to go to Katie Holmes wanting to promote this family image. Yeah, I also think maybe Tom Cruise was thinking, I'm at that point in my career. I want to be known more as a family person. I'm together with Katie Holmes. We're a family. Well, the world's trying to accomplish that too. Yeah. Slayer just looking after his son in the Dakota Fanning character. He's, he's, he's not playing like the, the hotshot maverick anymore. It's like now I'm a dad. I have responsibilities. He's not chasing Kelly McGillis. He's um, settled down and just wants to protect Joyce. Yeah. Um, Mission Impossible 3. God. Strange one. Uh, it's Strange my least one. favorite of the series. I do I like agree. it. It's the worst. It's pretty much Alias, the feature version of Alias. It's very Alias-esque. Um, the action. This rabbit's foot. What is this rabbit's foot? Um, Ronan did it better 10 years before. The plot isn't that interesting. Neither is the action. Too much CG. Um, except I will give credit to the amazing running sequence through Shanghai and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's goddamn incredible at elevating this but otherwise incredibly boring villain owned that's the thing. arms dealer. That's the thing. I, I wasn't that impressed by Hoffman, even though I agree his performance is great, just because I always have difficulty engaging when the when the writing is that is that bad. His character so, is way less interesting than the way he plays it. But then he has the best individual sequences, the sequences where he's threatening him on the plane, um, the sequence where he's holding his partner hostage and the bit in the bathroom in the Vatican when it's Tom Cruise, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Ethan Hunt, playing Philip Seymour Hoffman. And they had some fun with the masks on this one. Yeah, they they had so much fun with masks until again, until number six, which had the best use of them after number one. Uh, It's- No, number two, the ridiculous twist. Oh, that's right, with Richard Roxburgh. <laughs> okay, that was... That was that something. Was, that was pretty great. Also, Tom Cruise showing himself... Where Tom Cruise playing Doug Ray Scott's character, a bit of you as Tom Cruise as a villain in that. Also, well done on rewatch. I'd forgotten about that scene. Hadn't seen the film in a few years. I really don't have much to have Mission Impossible 3. The, actually, no, I'll note that I don't like the sequence where he swings through between the buildings in Shanghai because it's so obviously CGI. Yeah. And the, the series, the cachet of it, the appeal of it is what he does later. The Burj Khalifa scene, all the practical effects that Tom Cruise lent himself to, they're so much better than any bad crude CGI, which J.J. Abrams used in number three. But between those two, we have a couple of uh, I'm a Nice Guy movies, right? Valkyrie? Yeah, Valkyrie and Lions for Lambs. Okay, I watched Lions for... I haven't, I haven't seen Lions for Lambs. I watched the first half yesterday. Excuse me for not finishing it. Is it's that bad? About, I heard it was bad. I never bothered to watch it. Yeah, well, it was more timing, but yeah, it, it is that bad. It's about... Tom Cruise plays a senator who's being interviewed by a reporter played by 
Meryl Streep. It also stars Andrew Garfield, Robert Redford. It's directed by Robert Redford. It, I think it's also written by Robert Redford. I'll just check that. It pains me to say this, but I, Robert Redford is probably my favorite actor, but in this, he is not at all a good director or I believe potentially screenwriter. I'm just trying to- I think he just now. directed it. Yeah, he just directed it. Yeah. The problem with this is it comes off the- Invasion of the Iraq War, and it was one of the first films to prominently talk, like Green Zone, to talk about what is the fallout, what what has happened here. America is still very much, it's still very much at the forefront of the news, and it's trying to exposit and digest and come out with a view as to um, what is the right and wrong here, what is the view of the American public. And the problem is every character, every sequence reads like it was transcribed from several New York Times articles. It's not a criticism. I don't necessarily, I don't disagree with a lot of the politics in this movie, or at least a lot of the views that some of the characters put forward. It's just that every character is designed for a particular view and function. Everything is calculated. Everything is mechanical. Everything is philosophizing. Preachy liberal movies. Sorry? You know, the preachy liberal movie tradition. Oh, yeah. And it's it's clear like Cruz doesn't ever really get into politics, and it's clear from it's clear, however, from this and Board on the Fourth of July that he does have a political bent, and this is about as far as we could probably get to talk about it. It's clear he is relatively left wing. He's clearly not au fait with a lot of what his character is spouting here. I compare it to um, an Aaron Sorkin film from about the same time, Charlie Wilson's War, where Tom Hanks plays a not as a character plays not the simpler function he's a congressman and that i didn't like that film either it's probably aaron sorkin's weakest work at least on a, from a feature perspective and yeah and a weak work from mike nichols as well yeah it, it's just this film is so clunky and obvious in painstaking and trying to make its point to you that it loses any sense of a dramatic arc or tension or rhythm i wouldn't re- I, I grant that i haven't seen the whole thing but based on the first half i wouldn't recommend it it also wastes andrew garfield in one of his very early prominent roles that's how it always is when people are starting out yeah so um, not one of not tom cruise's best work and not working to his um action persona either so that's lines for lambs a valkyrie i saw, saw this on release i did not I didn't like it very much. It's about the Valkyrie plot to um, for a number of German soldiers during the first world, second world war, excuse me, to kill Hitler. And again, th- th- this has been reorient this story. It's a famous story. It's a well-known one. It's been reorientated as an action flick, but much more interesting and important from this story. And it's dealt with in relative, relatively fleetingly is the dilemma faced by not just the German soldiers, but by a number of others immediately prior and once the plot has happened as to what side they take, what side they come out of this on, the political machinations around it, um, the, the sense of personal risk versus ultimate reward. The impression they give is that many in the high command didn't want Hitler to um, obviously remain in power or survive, but, and slight spoilers here for those who haven't seen the film, or, but it is a matter of historical record. Um, while it wasn't apparent immediately, Hitler did obviously survive the plot and the machinations around that, which are held in only a couple of scenes, are much more interesting than the actual action-oriented stuff of it, all the rest of the movie and how it's depicted. So Yeah, I I've only watched bits of this on TV. I've never seen it the whole way through. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a fan. Yeah, um, Tropic Bland. Tropic Thunder. Thunder. 
Tom Cruise plays Harvey Weinstein, Hollywood producer. Basically, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I reckon there's a few horror producers, uh, characters rolled into one, but it's almost definitely mostly Harvey Weinstein. The whole, you know, like fat producer who goes on tirades and abuses people, the look, it's so Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Did Tom Cruise, I don't think Tom Cruise ever made a Harvey Weinstein film. No, you're right. I wonder if this film had something to do with that. Yeah. Um, we, have to, we have to remember, sadly, Harvey Weinstein was a very pa- extremely powerful figure in Hollywood at the time. And Tom Cruise may have been the only act, one of the only actors and not the only actor who could have pulled this off and completely gone away with it. Like he's so patently, obviously, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. Yeah. Len, Len Grossman. A, a lot of people hated him, Weinstein, you know, behind the scenes, but he was too powerful. Yeah. Um, I like the intensity Cruise brings to this from a comic perspective. The sequence where he's staring down Matthew McConaughey and explaining why it's more beneficial to have the Ben Stiller character, I've put in his name, great name, um, killed rather than survive is just so funny. And then he just starts dancing, obviously, which is for a package of a refrain later of the creative storm Cruise's amazing dancing sequence. The, se- the bits where he's just drinking coffee and swearing. He doesn't do a lot of... Sh- comedy in major roles night and day is an exception we'll get to in a minute but this gold member even as fleeting as it was showed how good he can be with comedy though to be fair i think a lot of that depends on subverting our understanding of who tom cruise a lot of this is only funny because it's tom cruise Cruise, and it's funny to see tom cruise in this role and that you you look at and you look at him and you don't see tom cruise because tom cruise's attractiveness and his his look has always been such a big part of Tom Cruise, right? And here on his fat, um, he has he's bald, balding, extremely balding, <laughs> big beard, the suspenders, sunglasses, and suspenders. guy. Yeah, uh, it it it's really funny watching Tom Cruise go apeshit. He's always had a talent for going apeshit. We saw it in Magnolia. We saw it in A Few Good Men. We saw it in Jerry Maguire. It's funny to see an entire role about that side of Tom Cruise. And he wasn't forefront in the marketing. So you, you get into the film and you remember thinking, is that Tom Cruise? Yeah. I, I remember thinking the cinemas and thinking that. And it was the it thing was, about the movie. It was the, like, the you've film. got to see this. You'll never believe Tom Cruise, what he's doing here. Yeah. But, and that and uh, the early opening sequence of Scorcher 1 through 6 are my favorite parts of the film. But we have to recognize that this is very much playing into Cruise's persona of, I need to be seen now as someone who doesn't take himself too seriously and can laugh at himself and is just a regular guy who likes comedy like you. Hmm. This is really, and this leads on to one of his most underrated films, Night and Day, where this he is, plays oh, such a Tom Cruise role. Like it could not be yeah. anyone but Tom Cruise. I wonder if it was written knowing that it would be Tom Cruise. I think Brad Pitt could maybe do it, but not as good as Tom Cruise. It's so just like the winning smile and the cocky arrogance you know the charmer it's like jerry Maguire, tom cruise in an action movie i, I love so he's a he's a spy it's out of that comedy where he meets cameron diaz and falls for her but the theatrics around him being a spy he can do more large life acrobatic stuff and aeronautics than he could otherwise his characters could otherwise do in other movies and it's an imf type force he's obviously working with but it's played for laughs and comedy as he tries to climatize cameron diaz to the lifestyle the, the scene where he jumps on the car i was like hi 
hi there, hi, I'm back. Just wanted to say hi, hold on, I'm going to shoot these guys. Um, the scene where he's walking through the warehouse and bolts are just flying everywhere and he doesn't care because he knows he's Tom Cruise and he's not getting shot. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, this is a, a fun, easy watch. It reminds me of a lot of 80s action comedy type stuff. I think it was out of sync with the trends of the time, which is why it bombed, as well as maybe because of the backlash against Tom Cruise at the time. I mean... I think most of his films post Mission Impossible 3 underperformed for quite a while, right? Yeah, he was seen, he was seen as a little passe to the point of in the next film, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, they were trying to replace him with Jeremy Renner. Brent's function, that character's introduction was to see him continue the franchise. But it became clear following that and during that and reception of that film, Cruz was A, so popular, B, was the only one willing to do these insane stunts and people wanted to see it. They just kept going. He was relegated to a minor role in number five. Jeremy Renner's nowhere to be seen in Fallout. And everyone, and Tom Cruise's cachet is picked up to the point where he's Jack Reach, who's doing more and more stuff. People like him much more again. Um, was, was, tangent. was Jeremy Renner really intended to replace Tom Cruise? That's the rumor. As, I saw it as definitely a possible, um, like we're training a mentor type role, but I never thought that he would actually replace him. It's it's very it's, it seems very apparent from his characterization that he's part of the team now that mm-hmm. they can bring him into, as on this another movie. Hey, Tom Cruise is on holiday, but you, Jeremy Renner, can can do this now. It's kind of like with the Bourne, mm-hmm. whatever terrible Bourne Jeremy Renner was in. Fortunately, uh, for Tom Cruise, he is the producer of the movie, so he could of course give himself all the best stunts and do what he could to win over audiences' trust and love again. And so we um, have. Yeah, no disparaging Jeremy Renner. I have no idea how game this dude is for stunts, but would Jeremy Renner or anyone else be game to walk outside the Burj Khalifa and then run down it and across it? I don't know. I, I, I give Cruz pretty strong credit in that regard. Oh, so on a bit of a tangent, but aside from Collateral, are there any films, And aside from Collateral and one other film he did very recently in his career, are there any films where Tom Cruise's character dies? He doesn't do death scenes. Spoilers for Collateral. I don't think anyone is too shocked by that. Um, No, you're right. I think it's just because of the way that he's always playing these. He's always going to be front and center. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that's Night and Day. Ghost Protocol. Uh, We talked about it when we talked about Fallout. Look, the. um, I really have. The Burj Khalifa stunt is just so incredible. It was amazing to see in IMAX. Um, it really defines the film. I think the movie as a whole is really fun. I love the tone they strike. I think there's a nice cleanness to the action scenes. Thank you, Brad Bird. Yeah, it's fun. First um, live action feature. Yeah. Yep. Um, the Burj Khalifa is the best stunt in the entire series. It's the best stunt Cruise has ever done. It's one of the best stunts ever committed to film. And I don't know if they're ever going to be able to top it. I'm, I'm here for Mission Impossible 7 and 8. and I'm here for the space movie he's going to do, but to see him go up it, to run down it, and then run across it, and and they kept that. They didn't release all that footage for the trailers and promotional material, which was very smart. They just teased us with Tom Cruise sitting on top of the bloody tower. Incredible stuff. I agree. Definitely one of the best stunts of all time. Um, As you say, such so immensely better than the CG swing he does in MI3. Uh, oh, but, yeah. But yeah, this moment is where Cruz's career shifted. This is where it became all about doing these incredible stunts. Like that just became the, the prevailing mission of his career at this point. Um, to note a couple, 
things about that film. Um, I loved some of the early sequences, the sequence where the other agent throws the bag down and shoots the bullets up to hit the stunt. The henchman is running off to him. There's a lot of great set pieces just on the, the action is just the so scene. well, well done. Oh God. It's, it's so good. Um, uh, and the Kremlin scene is really funny. Mm. Where oh yeah. Trying, yeah. Where they, but it's playful. To... Same as the, uh, you know, the scene in, in the infiltration of the, in India, not to the same extent as um, the Kremlin scene, but yeah, it's funny. Um, two things I really liked about my two favorite things about the Burj Khalifa sequence. When just before he jumps out the window, they have that shot of him like just standing against the wall, like drawing in breath. It's that moment of where like the same thing as John McClane, where he's about to jump off the tower. Instead of saying, I'm going to do this and I'm an action to side, he says, please let me die. Please don't let me die. It's showing enough vulnerability to make to, to ground the scene and render it more believable. If it had just been Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible 2 style, flying on a motorcycle through flames, I don't think it would have worked as well. But knowing he was a little bit older, felt a little bit more vulnerable, made the scene work much better. Also, and it's one of my favorite shots in modern cinema, but the incredible shot, the pan down as he's running down the side of the tower and the skyscrapers come into view below us. That's yeah, amazing. Wonderful. What a beautiful, beautiful image. And then crews running along the side of the building. Just gorgeous. Wonderful stuff. Thank you, Radbird. Rock of Ages? More fun goofing around from Tom Cruise. The movie is interesting. He's your guy. Yeah, he's your guy. But it's interesting how the newcomers cast in the lead roles are so bland and boring. The real appeal. Diego something something and um, <laughs> Courtney... Uh, from the Footloose remake. I'm sorry, I forgot the name. I'll bring it up. Uh, we have here Diego Benita and Julianne Howe. Okay. I had the great pleasure of seeing the original runs of this on Broadway and the West End. It works as a stage jukebox musical. It's really good because there is an artifice to coming in and singing these songs randomly that Mamma Mia, the movie adaptation, nailed and musical nailed but does not translate in terms of Rock of Ages. They also change a lot of the good plotting elements. Um, in the original production, it's these Germans who are trying to come in and buy up the whole place. In this, it's a, about Catherine Zeta-Jones' censorship. It just doesn't land as well. The hokiness works in theatre. Moreover, the, the, ca the casting of the leads is bad compared to any of the major productions. The... Lonnie, the main, the Russell Brand character, in the stage version, he breaks the fourth wall a lot. He's the narrator. It doesn't work because they have a much more reduced role for him in Rock of it in the movie. But you needed that function more. The scene, the icon fight, this feeling scene that he has with Alec Baldwin is really awkward compared to it being incredibly camp and much more openly so in the any stage production where it's much better. Um, the whole movie is about it has to be upbeat. Whereas the musical, it didn't have as happy an ending. It went for a very different tone. It was much better. We just, with this movie, it was like, no, no, it has to be, we all have to win in the end. It didn't work. It's also a lot more conservative in its approach. Um, but I don't want to, but that will be speaking to spoilers simply to say that it ha the film has relatively conservative attitudes to sex yeah. compared to age musical and why can't we just why can't people feel people are open a stage seems people just 
with a lot of stage movie stage movie adaptations, people seem to be just a little bit conservative. Um, it happened with Cats too, especially because this is. I don't rock. know why. Obviously, well, apparently, what flies on stage doesn't fly in the movies. Because theatre goes a deviance, and movies are the entertainment of the masses. It's rock of ages, you know. It's about hard rock. It doesn't have to be so clean. And it's saturated bad covers of rock compared to the musical. Having said that, the one good thing about it is Tom Cruise's Stacey Jacks. He actually improves upon the performance he played on Broadway in the West End. He's funny. He he's cover of Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. Yeah, it's really good. Bloody fantastic. Uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me and Don't Stop Believing are okay. A little diminishing returns there. But what a Dead or Alive. He had Axl Rose's voice coach. And I believe Tom Cruise as an aging, larger-than-life rock star because, goddammit, it's Tom Cruise. And he yeah. learned to sing for this. Uh, he elevated what was otherwise just a lousy, lousy movie. Just disappointing. Um, Jack Reach is next. I have nothing to add. Yeah. Jack Reacher. Um, oh. I don't like the Jack Reacher movies. No, I don't like them either. And it's I don't have a problem with the books. I've read a couple. They're enjoyable i think they're pretty I, I, I think they're pretty generic compared to the time material tom cruise is used to working on but moreover they're as, as much as jack reacher is a very distinct character and tom cruise should never have been cast he's he doesn't have the physical presence the the, the not just screen presence but physical presence there's a distinction important distinction to draw in there that the role of jack reacher requires. jack reacher is like six five he's hulking tom cruise is is very emblematic in anything he's in but he doesn't have the physical, he doesn't fill the frame like Jack Reacher is supposed to. There's other things about it, but moreover, Jack Reacher is so plot-orientated. Cruz should always be doing character-orientated work. Why is he in this relatively standard thriller? Why did he choose to make two of these? I think it's a really bad career call. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Yeah, because it's a popular book series, popular hero for him. But Tom Cruise is bigger than Jack Reacher. Yeah, I don't know. I I can't really say. The first one has an amusing Werner Herzog performance as the villain. What is it? Um, hey, are you so tough that you'd bite off your own fingers? Bite off your own fingers. <laughs> I have to prove you're tough. It's like, yeah, great stuff. Oh, and we build bridge. We're evil. We build bridges. We strengthen communities. Yeah, hilarious. Uh, Jack Reacher two is so bad. Generic. What's there to talk about? But like. We have now entered into just I am an action hero phase of his career. Jack Reaches, one and two, The Mummy, and then Mission Impossible five and six. Yeah, uh, I, I have not seen The Mummy. I've I have. Heard, okay, I've heard only bad things and seen a few scenes from it. With well, all I'll say is this: the original Mummy, which also is celebrating its twentieth anniversary right about now, and even the sequel, which is not nearly as good, but is still a quite an enjoyable action romp got the fact got that if you're going to make a film about a mummified corpse that comes back to life it's dumb and it has to be kind of fun this wanted to take the lore of the original myth seriously without really delving into any of the myth it's tom cruise trying to be indiana jones but indiana jones when they talk about the ark of the covenant when they talk about um the holy grail they talk about the lore and understanding and mythos and writings behind it. Here they just don't. Here they just go straight into the action. And the action is CGI, is heavily dependent on CGI, which is not what we want or are used to with Tom Cruise. So you have a relatively boring generic action flick, which 
is based on a property which we've seen adapted since time memorial. I know Universal wanted to bring out their dark universe monsters here and there, but we've we, this is like War of the Worlds. The, the mommy, original mommy films, and moreover, the mommy is still good. It's still in the cultural zeitgeist. We didn't need a new one right away. There's no place for the film. It didn't need to be made. Are we talking the mummy with Brendan Fraser or going back further? Mummy with Brendan Fraser. I really like that movie. Because technically that is a remake as well. It was Universal's reboot. After like, what, 50 years? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, enough time had passed. Yeah, I think really it's it's like three different movies which don't really have anything to do with each other. Yeah. But... Um, um, yeah, it's the mummy. India, so India shows. Uh, Mission Impossible five and six. Um, right. We should, we should, do we want? We skipped over Oblivion and Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, okay. I guess we should yeah, have I, Oblivion. I really liked Oblivion. I, I, I like that. It, there was a there were two twists. One which was very obvious, but then that twist masked the second greater twist, which was about being in the Beyond Zone. Mm. I like Morgan Freeman in this. It's one of the few comic adaptations Tom Cruise has done. It's a relatively competent sci-fi. I'm the looking truth forward is, to space maybe a bit more. Oblivion's not really a comic adaptation. The comic was something that the director, Joseph Kosinski, had made because he was struggling to get the film off the ground. And so it's easier. This just shows how mad Hollywood's become. It's easier to get it made if it's based off a pre-existing property. So even though the property only existed to get a film that he'd failed to get Greenland made. It's now based on a property, so we can do that. We can do this film now. Um, I liked the, the ending felt like it was directed, adapted straight from a comic pain. I liked the end. Kosinski's how it's basically Wally. Yeah. Kosinski's movies have that same, have that kind of look um, like this in Tron legacy, where it's like, it's straight out of concept art. He comes from the advertising and design world. You can see it. Um, the visual design in this is great. It's definitely better and more engaging on a plot level than uh, Tron Legacy. I think William Monaghan, who wrote The Departed, did the script. Yeah, big improvement. Edge tomorrow. It's a fun twist on. Yeah, it's a fun twist on Groundhog Day. What I, what is so clever about this, aside from being a good action flick, which really well utilized Emily Blunt is that like Tropic Thunder and Goldmember and all the film and Night and Day, this was very much acknowledging Cruz's public persona and realizing if you want to get the best of both worlds, put me in a movie where I can be action driven, but then people who don't like me, you can watch me die over and over and over and over and over again. So you knew what he was doing. Also one or two films to start writing Gleason and Tom Cruise with Mission Impossible 2. This film uh, I think is also reckon, uh, sorry is also notable as being one of the most video game inspired narratives in recent years. I mentioned Groundhog Day, which is the obvious comparison in terms of how it functions as a film. But what separates it from Groundhog Day is that it's an action narrative where it's about oh let's try and get further than we got the last time we died, retrace our steps, but make some different decisions. Um, this film didn't do that well at the box office, but has had quite a shelf life. And, you know, it really appeals to the gamer set. It's notable that it's one of the few Tom Cruise. This is now be the third Tom Cruise film. that will be part of a franchise that he's been in. Uh, yeah, apparently. By repeat and repeat. I, I, yeah, it's strange. The film is called Edge of Tomorrow, which is a terrible title. 
um, and live, die, repeat was the tagline on the poster. And later on, they realized, I guess, that it was a bad title after it bombed and tried to change the name to live, die, repeat. And yeah, so live, die, repeat, but live, die, repeat and repeat is on point. Yeah, I kind of doubt we'll actually see that film. I think if movies get on the chopping block after the production halt, that's one of the ones that'll go. But I might be surprised. Um, another thing, a brief thing I liked about this, I love that the map they show for like a second at the beginning and how the alien forces invaded is basically a map of the, the front lines of World War II. Mm. Nice little touch. Um, speaking of how good this is, it's in stark, it's in such contrast to War of the Worlds where this is not going to be an analogous metaphorical narrative. It's an action-driven one. It knows it. It's aware of what level it's working on. So a similar uh, MacArthur and a similar issue works to much better effect here as it did in War of the Worlds. So it's similar oh, alien invasion, although the aliens have very different capabilities. Um, two meta things that are very kind of distracting about this. One is that there are strong similarities with Looper which came out only a year before, also starring Emily Blunt. And that's a little bit, oh, really? Did they have to be so close together? And another is that Noah Taylor in this plays pretty much the exact same role he plays in Tomb Raider. And I guarantee you, every single person who saw Tomb Raider is going to see this movie because it's that crowd. Yeah. I do find about this film, the latter stages of it, when it becomes more driven by the plot, and supposedly caring about the characters aren't as effective as when it's just a wacky action comedy where Cruz keeps dying in amusing ways and there's some brutal sci-fi war scenes every five minutes. I love, however, the sequence is where he has to convince Emily Blunt that he is coming back to life again and again. Oh, yeah, great. And he's just made it so quick smart like there's a great bit where he just walks through the machine arm and he just explains like all right let's get going yeah <laughs> it's, it's become so automated it's not so many times there's been so many rifts of groundhog day over the years it's maybe the best one probably yeah go see it if you haven't edge of tomorrow next up is what mission impossible five yeah yeah, yeah i i didn't like this as much as four I thought it was a nice thriller. Um, I really liked the opera scene, which was very De Palma-esque. Um, I... Very Scorsese-esque, actually. What's the little short he did with Simon Baker? I'm not sure, actually. I probably haven't seen it. I like this more than four, if alone for Ilsa Faust, Rebecca Ferguson's character, the best character in the series who isn't Ethan Hunt. She was good. Hunt. She was good. I think I just found this one... You know, it's not as fun as four. It's not going for the fun of four. I found it, I've honestly, similar, um, I feel similarly about all of the recent Mission Impossible films, which is they're all good. They could be a lot better, but there's just a failure to 100% commit on the plot what level four, mostly. What four had going with, for the first time in this series that it wasn't about the IMF or an agency being compromised. This goes back to that, but it double, triples down. It was not just an agency or an agent. Now it's an entire organization of agents who have been compromised. Mm. And Fallout ups the ante again with the apostles. I don't mind it because it's the logic this universe is working in. I think it works better when it's more of a genre anthology-focused film. I don't like the series as much as it's gone to serialization rather than it, and, and being an anthology, but I still enjoy it. It's a beast in and of itself. 
Olad had exceptional action. I think that is the most notable thing. The yeah, the motorcycle chase is incredible. The foot chase, um, yeah. both motorcycle and the motorcycle chase in Rogue One was good too. But the foot chase in Fallout, where he's jumping over buildings, um, the incredible scene where he climbs up the. I mean, road Rogue Nation. No, I'm saying Fallout. I'm talking about Fallout. Oh no, you just said Rogue One. Sorry, Rogue, Rogue One. Sorry, Rogue Nation. Yes. Yeah. As it came out at the same time, but that's the same time. Rogue One, Rogue Nation. Uh, the great scene where he's climbing up the helicopter. Um, the amazing spy versus spy stuff in the catacombs under France. Incredible, gorgeous, action-driven, fun, old-fashioned storytelling. And I think Fallout double triple down on that, which is why I like Fallout more than Rogue Nation. I still really enjoy Rogue Nation. I, I always always annoyed a little annoyed at that poor Austrian premiere. He got exploded and then no one talks about him for the rest of the movie like, yeah that didn't matter yeah i've been to that opera house if the austrian uh if skirts got exploded outside there it'd be a bigger story and also alec baldwin's line about hunt being the literal manifestation of destiny is so stupid alec baldwin-esque actually that's yeah. what it doesn't worry about these films alec baldwin they're action films where you should be serious but you can't get out of alec baldwin comedy mode he, he, I don't think he can anymore. He's a traditionally an action drama actor, but he's, he's become so the far into parody. Persona, he's now funny guy. All the time. It, it worked yeah, in. Was, it worked in number four. Worked in number four. He was a little more no, number three, number five. Right. Was he not in four? He wasn't in four. No, it was Tom Wilkinson was the secretary, and huh. he was killed. And then Reno. A lot of secretaries being killed in these movies. He was like Baldwin was a yeah. Um, Oh, Mission Impossible. So we talked about the mummy. We talked about American Made on its release. We caught up to the releases. I didn't like it. It's a non. It's a non-charismatic role for a person who really requires a charismatic large. Person defined by his charisma. Yeah, Barry Seal. Just also the story is much interesting when the film led on. Hmm. Um, and it gets the very interesting stuff in the third act. Um, it's kind of boring. Uh, if you want to know a bit more about Pablo Escobar and get a bit interesting narrative, go watch Narcos, which this was obviously ripping off. So what's next for Tom Cruise? Space. Space. I, I, I have to roll my eyes at it, honestly. Like, it could be cool, but the concept of doing a movie in space is cool, and I just see ego in it. Like, I have to be the first actor in space. Do you know what I mean? Like, it could just be... I, I mean, I'm being harsh. It could just be that Tom Cruise you know, loves space and was like, you know, loves making movies and wants to make a movie up there. In fact, I'm sure it kind of is that, but his career feels like increasing escalation of stunts. I, I think what he wants to do is make every other space movie, the Moonrakers of the world, look stupid in comparison. Of all the space movies that, to mention Moonraker. Hey, but... <laughs> and Oblivion, in fairness, and Edge of Tomorrow, where does he go into space in that? No. No, he doesn't. But the problem is, they've also, the, the, if you read all those articles talk about Tom Cruise going into space, have indicated that one camera person will go up with him, which means you can have a lot of static shots of just Tom Cruise and not lots of cunning and chopping, moving around. And you won't be able to have that much hand dynamics because you're in zero gravity and it's one guy. If the camera gets faulty, you've got nothing else to work with. So you are limited, and granted, you may just be filming some scenes in space, maybe pickups later. I wonder what film this is for. Surely there's a film 
that is kept secret that this is for and it's not just like oh we do a movie in space and we'll figure out the rest later could it be mi7 or mi8 could be i reckon it's mission impossible that's so awesome it has to be like what else would it be because it sounds like they're <laughs> doing this soon right uh, so didn't we actually joke at the time like where does he go now from fallout uh this could be what he does i wouldn't could be surprised I doubt there's another movie out there where they would, you know, send a, send Tom Cruise to space. I, I just want to be there for that conversation. It's like, Tom, there's this film we want to, we want to set it in space. So I'm going to space. No, 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 no. I am going to space. Then it was I'm... more like, what's the next crazy thing we can do? And he, it would be more like outer space. We're going to no, we, space. We, f- we film it in space. I want to thrill you. I don't know. Can you imagine Tom Cruise sitting at home being like, what is it? When am I getting in my spacesuit? Hey, Elon Musk, let's let's make this happen. Come on, dude. I'm ready for my spacesuit. That was a bad impression. (laughs) He probably already has it feathered. Oh, dude, of course. We know Tom, and he'll do it. I'm waiting on my spacesuit, Elon. And then he'd do that grin, that kind of like weirdly smug grin. What we have to figure with Cruise is it's not just the sheer brazenness of doing these insane stunts. It's the nerve of how he holds up during it. The bit where he walks out onto the glass on the Burj Khalifa, he had to hold his nerve as if he, and most actors would just fall apart or just look nervous, but he had the bravura to pull it off. And a stunt, we, he's actually probably his most dangerous stunt. We haven't spoken about it in this episode, but in Mission Impossible 2, when the knife comes down to his face, that was real. A stuntman was rigged to shove a knife onto his face where it would stop about a, uh, just under an inch from his eye. Wow. And Tom Cruise, in order to do the stunt, had to remain and not get his stabbed in the face, <laughs> had to go back and watch it, had to remain motionless, but keep his eyes open to get the shot of the knife coming down into his eye. That's a real knife. The glint is real. Wow. And it's so unnecessary. <laughs> no, it's not, Chris. No, no, it's not Captain Australia. It's Tom Cruise. And I, I just wish that had been more ob- as obvious as him jumping between the buildings in MI6 or him holding onto the side of the plague in Rogue Nation because he deserves credit for that. But to have the nerve to keep it together during things like that, there's no one else who's working on that level in Hollywood who's as famous as Cruz. I, I mean, I shouldn't talk about this, but I've seen other people talk about it. And uh, so therefore, that's my excuse to do it. They did it first. No, but... Um, it is a valid concern. He might die filming one of these things one day, you know? Like he, he well, put... was told he wouldn't walk again after Fallout, walk properly. He was, he was told he had permanent damage to his leg after the stuns in Fallout, where you can see it. He smashes his leg against the building and then gets up and limps as he keeps running. But they had to shut down filming for a while, and then he just got back to it. Brutal. Yeah, it's a legitimate concern with any stunt work, but mm. he seems to be incredibly well-trained and know what he's doing. He's made it the focus of his career. Maybe what he's doing in all the time that he's not making more films these days is just lots of crunches, as you said earlier, off-camera, and, uh, you know, martial arts, all kinds of stunt training, I imagine. He's probably just always training for the next big mission impossible or whatever it ends up being pushing himself to the next tom cruise vehicle to the danger zone 
the danger zone. Danger he's, zone. He's, he's far down the highway in the danger zone. He is, yeah. Of course, he's making that Maverick movie. Of course, he is. Dude, that's Everyone, the thing. Top, Top Gun 2? Like, what? I was reading about Top Gun 2 when I first yeah, started I reading movie rumors when I would have been, like, 11. <laughs> um, and even then, that was ages after Top Gun came out. It was just one of those, like, yeah, I guess we should do that See, one of these days. But I, I think that one of the reasons, doesn't he, doesn't he want to actually get on the plane? Like, in Mission in Fallout, he learned to fly a helicopter in order to do the helicopter stunts. And, yeah, um, which is I, totally unnecessary, but cool. It's not necessary because everyone wants to see it. We want to see the stuff. If, if Tom Cruise is in a movie, I'm going to go see it. Granted, we talked about a few I haven't seen, but in the time I've been going to cinema, like uh, I've seen, seen most everything he's done. But that, but that was the case before. It was like, oh, let's see Tom Cruise do this crazy skill. I've always enjoyed his movies. Like, he is. Will we see many movie stars going forward in his vein? We won't. I don't think so. No, he'll I, never do TV. I had a thought about Fallout. Um, you know, a lot He's of the... TV, TV, right. Yeah, a, a lot of... Um, no, but Tom Cruise is such a movie guy. Maybe he'll do TV. You never know what, what it'll be like in 10 years. But... Um, He's 66. Yeah, you never know. But... Um, I think I thought about Fallout when he jumps out of the plane at the beginning. My impression watching it is this is fake. This is all CG. No, it's real. They just ruined the shot by adding a bunch of CG storm clouds. Don't get me wrong. I know that the um, storm was an essential plot element, but the effect of seeing that big fake CG thing is that it, you know, I read it as, oh, so he's not really skydiving. This is all fake. I'm seeing the cues that this is fake. And so because we're conditioned that way by movies, I just interpret the whole thing is fake. But no, it's a real skydive with fake CG clouds. It did bother me. I, I even knew it going in that it was real, but it felt jarring. And It feels fake, so doesn't it? Awesome. Watching it, you, you it read it as fake, which is a shame. It's so awesome that a camera person jumped backward in order to get the crews of shot of Tom Cruise doing the halo jump out as he does his mask back up. So yeah. Tom Cruise for the shot had to make sure his mask was tight and then just jump out of the plane. Yeah, it's great. a lot of those. You know, yeah. Good on him. But yeah. I, I remember in there's a similar stunt, there's a similar action sequence at the beginning of, again, Moonraker, where they jumped out of the plane and had camera people just around them for several takes. And this was a similarly staged sequence. It's, it's really good. But Moonraker looks real because it was real and there were no CGI storm clouds. Should have learned from 79, guys. It, it's just a uh, strange thing. Like, there's the lack of awareness that if you see something CG, it cues you to thinking the whole thing is fake because we are so tuned into CG and so used to those moments of like, is it real? It's not real, is it? No, it's not because CG's gotten so good now. There's just a psychological effect. Like when you see a shot with nothing CG in it, you know that it's real the majority of the time. As soon as you put that one fake CG element in it, from the way we're reading it, it may as well be entirely fake. So it's a shame to ruin the shot in that regard. To go to that much of it. The, the Halo Drop into Tomorrow Red Eyes, that was real. Really? Okay. I always thought it was real from memory. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a lesson that 
a lot of directors aren't following. Yeah. Which is sad. Um, kind of like the end of uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol with the scene with the cars, which is very clearly not real. Yeah. I'm cool to watch Tom Cruise do action stunts, but this was a down note to end on. That movie. Do you think that he'll ever go back to drama? Yes. I think he's going to get to a point. He's too where... old. Yeah, he's too old. And a lot, to his great credit, a lot of people thought that point was a long time ago. It wasn't. He's still doing the stuff. He's going to get to a point and he's going to move back to more uh, very mature, mature drama like he did in his, some of his earlier years. And it's going to be good. Hopefully he takes on some more edgy roles. Like I wouldn't mind him just doing action so much if doing action didn't just mean doing big budget movies, which means doing safe movies in terms of how the hero is going to be portrayed. You know, like I'd just like to see Cruz playing different sorts of roles. Like Collateral. Collateral is a great action film. Do fantasy. Cruz is more in the early stage of his career, but he had those eyebrows and that looked like an elf. Legend. Magical, like a bit eerie, which worked for the stat. And he still, I feel, pulled that off. Tom Cruise, hey, um, thanks for making movies and being and making great movies. The Cruise Missile. Cruise is a Cruise. He's on, but he's very rarely on Cruise Control. He is, uh, some movies he is, but he's usually just putting in, I think Jack Reacher he was, but usually just putting a lot of effort. So that's Tom Cruise. Yeah. Review he does when it can be released. They, they, they had to stop filming MI7 in Venice due to COVID. Yeah. That's on. I'm sure it'll be one of the first productions to resume. I'm sure. Well, thanks for listening to our Tom Cruise thoughts. It ended up being way more extensive than we had planned. Yeah. But there's lots, there's lots to talk about. He's been, he's, he's been around for like, yeah, like you said, Top Gun was 10 years before the first Mission Impossible film. He's been around for a long time. Yeah. Doing cool stuff. Thanks, Tom. And we and let us know what you want us to fight about. Something that's not a Tom Cruise movie because we've covered those. Yeah, drop us a line. Please. We will appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And let us know what you think otherwise. And yeah, we'll be back. Stay cool. Stay. Um, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Uh, I'm trying to think of a Tom Cruise. What is, what's a send-off Tom Cruise does? Uh, you had me at... No, that's not no. even said by Tom Cruise. <laughs> no, it's right, you're right. Uh, Tom Cruise, <laughs> you complete us. You complete us. Oh, man, but that's not true at all. <laughs> no, it's not true at all. That's actually really sad if that was true. We, we do like you, Tom Cruise, but... Uh, uh, just keep making cool movies and we'll be there for them. I'll be there for you. You take our breath away. Take our breath away.